Hey there, Angry Faithful. I just wanted to drop in, bend your ear a little bit, get your attention. So if you're not listening, drop what you're doing and pay attention to me. Because I'm here to inform you that not only can you get your daily, maybe if you're binging it, I'm not sure, that's entirely up to you, but you can multiply your doses of angry me fuckery by paying attention to all of the platforms upon which you can find either the dulcet tones of my voice and David's voice or my pretty face and David's not-so-pretty face. Anyways, digressing, we, not only on we are on YouTube, we are on Spotify, we're on Rumble, we're on Google, Apple Podcast. We have a TikTok page. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and of course, Facebook. So if you find yourself fuckery deprived, curl up with a nice hot mug of shut the fuck up and just listen. Open those ear holes and be prepared to be cream pied like it's the first time. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Angry Favorite. Today on What the Hell, we got uh, B.C. Sanders of uh, Skill Set and uh, the Disruptor Podcast. And uh, we, it was, it was one of those things that you just messaged me, and I was like, I don't have anything else better to do. So, but we, it, it yeah. took us a while because yeah. because of the basic fact is you got sick, I got sick, you had to do some uh, work stuff, and yeah. I was like, really. <laughs> yeah you're you're 100 right and now it, so we're just it, but but we found and what's sad is we took like 20 minutes just to get on this thing. yeah yeah so you're you're gonna learn that the running joke is when people say hey man what you know i'm gonna ask you what time it is bc but i don't need you to tell me the freaking history of a watch and how it works and everything else so i'm a little long-winded man but yeah yeah we've been trying to do this for uh, several several weeks yeah, yeah for over yeah. a month probably yeah, but uh, we, <laughs> I, I still think it's so because because I'm I'm, I'm I, I I can set everything up on my end for ever anybody else, but I was like, mm-hmm. man, I wonder what those guys do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's, it it kind of sucks. Like we, we have great lives, uh, but we can't stick to a schedule. So like when we're doing podcasts, no, I, 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 yeah. I totally understand that. <laughs> yeah. But it sucks because we'll yeah we'll line everything up and then we'll have to cancel and so it's 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 one of those things we're gonna get back up and running. Did you did you ever do you ever have like uh when you were doing like because I don't have any I have problems with guests only Mm -hmm. because I've I've actually tried to get like you know uh Oscar Foxtrot if he actually can figure that one out if you use that uh, derivative Uh, okay uh (laughs) person that does Oscar Foxtrot. I had to okay. say like different like corns the other thing, okay. And and you have to use grape for uh, uh, forceful stuff. It's so weird. I Just have no weird. idea what we're talking about. I'm sorry, but you okay? Yeah. Uh, uh, doing wordage and everything like that. Cause oh, okay. They'll get they'll get uh, to get to keep monetized and everything like that. You can't uh-huh. uh, you because. Uh, like I was telling you on my last uh, Psychos and Sociopaths episode, mm-hmm. I had to use racist terms because that was part of the history of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, well, this is not getting monetized. Yeah. 
and and you know that's the that's the crazy thing too like you're talking about uh like with history that's what when you mentioned skill set so I, i've written for skill set for se- several years and that's kind of like what i do i do historical badasses so i will pick certain slices of history that most people haven't heard of and there's good books out there and documentaries but it's just not part of the mainstream or it's not taught in, in colleges or classrooms or whatever. So like I've written on Bass Reeves, who was uh, like a, just this badass. Yeah. He was marshal. a U.S. Yeah. marshal. He was, <laughs> yeah. he was, yeah. he was like, dude, I, I, uh, there's a comedian up in Lawton. I swear to God, hand of God looks almost dead on about, uh, looks yeah. like Bass Reeves. Okay. He could I be showed him a photo. He's like, grandson. that's, that's, no, he's he's from like Africa, Africa. He's from Nigeria. Okay, okay, so, I got you. I mean, yeah, unless the right, yeah. they went back. Yeah. But yeah. no, uh, have you have you done? Man, I forgot his name. Uh, the dude from uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Oh, Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, have you yeah. heard his story? Uh sort of. You may have sent me something. Somebody sent me something about him, like like when he went into went to the service and what all he. Had no, done. he was in the Air Force. Mm-hmm. uh during world war ii no what was he was a british general general when he left he was okay. the uh, uh air force reserves no his badass moment mm-hmm. was when he he it was during vietnam and his stepson got uh got ambushed mm-hmm. so jimmy stewart just goes over there and just uh he 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 puts it at he's going to train some of the uh, air force people uh how to do some tricks and everything like that what he's learned and then he does does a couple of bomb runs. <laughs> I'm oh, like, I'm like Stewart. Yeah. It, or, but, uh, mm-hmm. or, uh, Jack Kirby. The uh, comic book artist? Dude. Yeah. He's a badass, too. Really? Dude, he had, oh. uh, uh, he was in the Battle of Mints. I he didn't was, even uh, know he was in the service. Yeah. Oh, so was Stan Lee. I may have known that. Uh, but, but I didn't know Jack Kirby was Jack Kirby, dude. Jack Kirby was a, he was just phenomenal. I'm gonna be reading tonight. About but Jack he, Kirby. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> go like nerdum of comic books is just not right. not to say I'm a nerd. I don't. Yeah, know. we're not nerds. You we're, no, you can't figure it out anywhere. Yeah, <laughs> my background that I'm a nerd. Right, right, right. But uh, no, he. They're, they're the best story I've ever heard, because at the time, they actually had, like, uh, Nazi uh, organizers in New York and everything mm-hmm. during that time frame until yeah. they decided, oh, we're going to kick your ass. So we're going <laughs> right. to have to get you out of here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But a Nazi sympathizer came up and just started yelling at him because he's Jewish and everything, thinking mm-hmm. he'd be, like, one of these pushover guys. No, he... Uh, before he went into the service, he learned how to do jujitsu, boxing. He was he was preparing mm. to kick Noxy ass. Yeah. So yeah. Jack Kirby, he 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 just like puts down his pipe, rolls up his sleeve, <laughs> goes downstairs, and ready to beat the <laughs> shit out of this fucking. <laughs> See, I like that, dude. Those are dude, the stories I like. Yeah, dude, I love stories like that too. It's, yeah, so and, it's, and they're uh, so interesting. Yeah. So there's one article I did um on the churchill club and these are teenagers uh in denmark who were like in middle school like uh 13 to about 15 and germany invades they'd already they invaded norway and norway was fighting back they invade denmark 
And Denmark basically kind of capitulates like almost overnight. It, it's sort of, you know, it was a very quick um, turn of events. But these teenagers would have been like the rebels in their town. And they, and they had heard stories about the, the Norway resistance, you know. So they were like, uh-uh, we're going to fight back. So these kids, these teenagers started like setting fires to Nazi trucks and switching the street signs. So that when the when the occupiers were coming in, they were getting their routes wrong. They were cutting <laughs> combo lines because they're kids. They hadn't none <laughs> of them knew awesome. how to shoot guns, right? So yeah. they were they were they would go and steal guns from like the cafe and stuff. These these soldiers would stack their weapons up and eat whatever pancakes or whatever they're eating breakfast. And these kids would walk by and see like maybe five rifles sitting up. They would steal a rifle or steal a pistol. Yeah, and so they start stockpiling them in one of their buddies dad's church he was a preacher or, uh-huh. or whatever you call it so they would start stockpiling these weapons up in the bell tower of the church and it, uh, and when the bells would ring they would test fire these weapons it's crazy dude that crazy. is awesome churchill club man they were like the real wolverines of world war ii that is so they they ended up they they ended up um destroying artillery pieces like they would go out and and take basically the cotter, the cotter pins or whatever out and roll these these small um, artillery pieces off into the water. Cause I guess, you know, these Nazi soldiers weren't really guarding their equipment anymore. A, a whole lot of it. They end up getting uh, imprisoned as teenagers and they escape. They like cut the bars. They saw the bar and actually get like a dowel rod and paint it black or, or gray and, and stick it up in the, in the window. So it looks like it, like, like it's fixed. Yeah. But at night they will pull the bar down, sneak out, do like just tear shit up and then come back and sneak back in so that the village or the, the town wouldn't suffer. Cause if they escape, then they would think, Oh, they're hiding out in the town. They would torture all the citizens. Yeah. Just like, like crazy, that is badass. Yeah. So that, I wrote like that one's digitized. So you can go to like skillsetmag.com and pull up all the, a lot of the articles. So it's a printed magazine, but they also digitize. Yeah. So like I've, I've done articles on, um, uh, female spies of World War II, like not like um, that they seduced the, the bad guys. Like these are women who speak two or three languages, are from France originally, and they would like parachute in, unzip a freaking flight suit they're in, and they're wearing clothes from France, and they just blend into the population, begin to build networks of resistance fighters. What was that, what was that one uh, there, that one chick? She was like a burlesque dancer, and she ended up like she was like a spy spy. You know, I, I don't know. Like I've, I've got lists of these women. And so, so when I would research the articles, some, there's quite a few, like Nancy Wake, there's quite a few books written on her. She was known as a white mouse. I mean, like she was grenade throwing, you know, machine gun shooting, uh, you know, just this wild thing, man, that was just destroying um, uh, the Nazis and stuff. Once, once D-Day happened and a lot of these spies broke cover, and went like into direct action. Uh, Virginia um, Hall, I wrote an article about Virginia Hall. She actually had um, a- accidentally shot her foot off with a shotgun when she was a teenager, but she never let anybody know that. So she only had one foot and, and got deployed into France two different times. The first time she was there, she built a resistance force. They're transmitting intel back to America and to England about how to how to actually set up invasions and all this stuff um and then she kind of gets compromised captured escapes crosses the pyrenees mountains and gets into spain gets imprisoned in spain (laughs) gets her way back to england 
and or uh, to America, and then is like, okay, well, I'm going to regroup and go back into France under a different alias, and I'm going to be an older lady. So she actually transforms how she walks, begins to like do a different gait, like a hobble almost, and gets deployed back into France, occupied France, and and runs like a farm. And so Nazi soldiers would come and get cheese and milk from her. And she would act like this older lady and could kind of do her makeup. So she looked about 10 or 15 years older. And so she starts to befriend these, these soldiers just enough to get Intel and then transmit. Cause she could, she could work the, um, the machines, they called them uh, typewriters, but they were like these machines that they would send back the messages, like very short messages. The transmit Enigma, them. The Enigma things. Sort yeah 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 like like just this well just this idea of transmitting messages okay. back to um the OSS and the SOE like the the Intel branch of it, but I mean just absolutely crazy man like like guts that most people never have and so you don't really hear anything about the women of World War II that were doing these no, missions really do it and they did a and, lot of stuff yeah too. and the reason though is they were they were geniuses because they knew after this war. No one suspects that that women were doing these missions, like assassinations and just taking people out and building these resistance networks and training people how to set demolitions on bridges and stuff. So they kept it completely secret. So in case another war like that broke out, they could use women the same way they had used oh, yeah. them too, man. It's so cool. But then these women, you know, began like a lot of them transitioned into the cia as the cia was formed out of the oss but oh it's crazy man it's i like it because i think about if someone reads it at a younger age that it could be like direct motivation like somewhere there could be a girl who's like 17 or 18 or something and reads about that and goes yeah that's what i want to do <laughs> like i want to go like that high speed like stuff. that chick that found bin Laden. oh i don't know about that yeah, it was uh she she was the one that did did all the oh oh oh, oh like yeah that. yeah I got you I got you you talking about like the, the Intel stuff and and breaking yeah. down yeah yeah I got you yeah so it's just it's cool so that's why I I wrote uh, a bunch of articles just about different things like that like just different facets of history that most people don't get to hear about so it's pretty cool it's a good break from um, police work it's a good because you got to have a balance. Like I, I, I'm very fortunate. I've had great assignments in what I do because I'm still active law enforcement. So instead of um, the old stereotype of you're working homicides and then like in the movies, you go home and you get drunk and, you know, and you, you know what I mean? Like I, I don't drink. So I exercise, I eat healthy, but I find things like that, like reading, writing, some types of hobbies to just decompress and completely get away from that type of negativity um or you know you're seeing dead no, bodies I, you're I seeing totally get it i had to i had to, i had to find something to do because i had like a lot of uh, a lot of trauma stuff happen to me mm. and uh it, it, and if i didn't like i did this and i i was playing i, I didn't want to play video games that much anymore mm-hmm yeah. but i wanted i wanted to do stuff i wanted to talk to people and this is i was like why don't I do a podcast and just start talking to people? It's yeah, like awesome. you you and 35,000 other people, man. <laughs> Me yeah, included. Right. You're like, you know what? I got a good idea, man. I'm going to have a podcast. Like, But the cool thing is, this is the best part about it. And and you and I were talking about it earlier. And, and my co-host, Ski, he and I worked um, kind of side by side through several years in, in our department. 
and we worked on two separate types of gang units. So we did a street level gang unit and then we worked together on like a FBI joint um, task force to work one specific gang and just dismantle it completely. So we've worked different angles like that, but we would always talk about this idea of doing something like, cause we also train, we do a lot of gang classes and train people on the techniques that we've kind of developed throughout the years, but, but we love music and we love people like just meeting new people and talking to people. So when we started the, the whole idea of the disruptors, we, we had been kind of formulating this plan for almost like a year, a year and a half. And then it kind of came to fruition, but it was this idea of like, even, even like for us, success is, can we meet very interesting people, talk to them and then have somebody listen to it and get something from it and just be like, man, I love that conversation, you know? Yeah. I, I and, just recently you know. listened to the, uh, the one where guy was like, uh, an addict, but he was retired from the uh, police department. Yes. Brock Bevel. Yeah. Everybody needs to go to Brock Bevel's Instagram account. Yeah. Follow him, man. He, he is always oh, great. He he's killing it. I mean, he, yeah. He's had a lot of stuff happen to him and everything, and he's mm-hmm. he's overcoming. And yeah, that's, so that's that's one reason why I wanted to do this. It was basically the 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 whole thing of it was like I do a lot of charities. I get their voice out there, mm-hmm. uh, what they want to do and everything. I mean, to the point where I got somebody that does a charity for a major company and everything, and he he's part of the show now half the time. Cool, cool. <laughs> It's, it's the like, pa- it's the power of it's the power of like Instagram or social media or whatever. Like that's how I met. That's how I met. That, that, it's yeah. it's if you actually came and meet uh, met me and everything. You're like, man, you're gonna be my best friend now. It's <laughs> how I act with people. Mm-hmm. If, mm-hmm. if I start a conversation with you and everything like that, and I've I've when I went to the TAC uh, uh, two years ago, that's where I met. Well. We met, he came down here, he was selling a uh, black rifle coffee, or he's giving away black rifle coffee. And we met up there. Uh I hung out with them. We talked. Uh they ha- they were having problems with the truck. And I was like, you get some airbag uh uh lifting kit mm-hmm. where you can just measure it out. You wouldn't have problems with bumps because they were having problems with bumps and they were just mm-hmm. <laughs> it was basically it's, it's one of those things is like they gave him this stuff. And like, y'all go around the country. I'm like, y'all pulling, y'all know how to do a trailer, right? N- no, maybe not. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Try this, try this, try this, try this. Y'all should be fine. Don't die right. or have death-like symptoms. <laughs> right. But uh, we met up at attack and we started talking there again. And, and then here recently, he was literally just, he was down and out. He he was having like really bad troubles in his uh, personal life, and we we ended up talking for like five hours. And then he's like, "Man, you're my best friend now. We're gonna just yeah. talk and everything. We're gonna yeah. have so much fun." I'm like, <laughs> "That's yeah. good." But yeah, it, it's just there, come off. Yeah, be, well, because they're they're kind of you know everybody always talks about like introverts, extroverts, or you know like just people that thrive off of other people's energy, yeah. and that is that's one of those things that like when ski and I first met and we started talking and we, we would end up doing, you know, surveillance for whatever, like seven or eight hours. We may be in a, in a minivan sitting in a parking lot, just watching some area, either waiting for, you know, a, a shooting suspect or waiting for a drug dealer or just doing Intel on gang members and, and just looking for like their, their patterns of observable behavior. And okay, 
does this dude have a gun on him? Does that dude have a gun? But in the meantime, like while you're waiting for someone to either come out of a, a dwelling or whatever, you're having these like silly conversations yeah. about music, yeah. about life, about how you grew up. And so I he just, and I were always like laughing and and joking like that as if one, that we had always known each other. And then two, when we started t- talking about things, we would get in these like in-depth conversations and we're like, oh yeah, 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 hold on, hold on. Like, oh, buddy's about to, <laughs> he's about to come out, you know, and yeah, it looks like he's got a gun in his waistband or whatever. So then we got to oh, switch. Yeah, yeah. Oh, shit. Now we got to switch back. Come. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Oh, We're doing something. We gotta, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We got a job to do. <laughs> yeah, like a, like a pretty dangerous job, right? <laughs> so yeah. We're getting ready to to jump a guy with a gun in his waistband. I've done that. I've done that. I was, I did that with the comedy at one point in time. I would end up like, I was taught, I was doing the set and me and this person in the front row had a, me and them had like a legitimate conversation. And he, and there, he literally had to say, I was like, are you going to tell any more jokes though? (laughs) (laughs) So tell me about that. Hold on. So, so you kind of dropped the bomb earlier when you said to me, just kind of in passing, you were like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm a comedian or stand-up comedian. Or whatever. I like, try. I don't okay. – I'm, I'm, not, I'm not paid. I just do a lot of open mics. I'm nothing like like super big in, in, in my area and everything. I do have one guy that wants to be part of the show that uh, he was actually – he was on VEP TV and okay. a couple of other uh, – like Fox, too, on some other thing. And he moved, he got, he, uh, during funny story, he got, he's, he started dating this chick during COVID. They started living together, decided to have a kid. And then he was like, well, I can't really pay for anything right now because of COVID. I can't do my comedy. So uh-huh. they moved here. Uh-huh. He got a job up here, up at the uh, air force base, uh, Shepherd air force base. It, it was, I was like, and, and if you look up, uh, Mitch, uh, burrows uh okay. on the podcast and just mm-hmm. it was just an interesting thing so and- when you talk about like like vets and people getting into comedy there's a guy met him through instagram like like everybody pretty much that we either either have on the show or that that i may mention in in the conversation like this i've met through instagram which is absolutely amazing for someone yeah. like me who likes people so there's a guy named dustin caps he does like caps wisdom uh military background but this dude like dresses to the nines. He'll come out on stage with like a vest, pinstripe suit, you know, uh, watch, uh, chain watch or whatever you call it, like pocket watch. And so he's been posting a lot of stuff lately where he's doing open mic nights and, and stuff like that. Um, so a lot of times I'll repost his stuff on my personal Instagram account, or sometimes I'll, I'll post it on Disruptors uh, Instagram. But that he's one of those guys that, when I listen to him talk, it's like right off the cuff, man. Like you're saying, he'll talk to people in the audience and it's absolutely hilarious because he'll, he'll key in on either something about a couple and the way they're acting or whatever. And then for like three or four minutes, he's just like, like going off talking to them. And it's hilarious, man, because we've also had really serious conversations too. And the guy is like, like very, very highly intelligent, well-read, but he's like a motivator, you know? So I don't want to steal his thunder and talk about his military background stuff, but you'll, you'll be hearing about him soon. His name's Dustin caps. Like he's, he's starting to make the rounds, man, but it's, it's pretty cool. Um, so eventually we're going to have him on the show too, as, as a guest, but yeah, I, that's the one thing I love is connecting with people and then, and being able to jump on different podcasts and then have people jump on with us. And, you know, I, I love the stories. 
the the stories yeah. out there on certain people and 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 a lot of the times it's one of those things you just even I don't like to go up on on celebrities and everything like that because I'm not when I was when I was actually in the Air Force I actually uh, I did services and services is basically take morale anything that dealt her mouth food uh, lodging recreation mortuary and honor guard that's mm, okay. all okay. Oh, in fitness. Okay. And the uh, other thing that I had to do when I was in Bahrain was uh, do the USO show. Uh, I was helping out okay. celebrities and everything. So I met like Jay Leno, uh, Cedric the Entertainer, Dwight Yokel, mm. uh, Chris Isaac. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. and, and, but the thing about – and Drew Carey, but – the one person I want to still punch the uh, punch in the face of the day is Wayne Newton. Really, dude? What's what's, what's the matter with Wayne Newton? What he, what did he done? He done? is a fucking ass. Really? Huh. Yes. And I, I thought it was just me in the situation. Okay. Fired. I kept on telling myself that until actual people yeah. that worked in Vegas, yeah, that had to deal with them. He's like, nah, uh-huh. I would done it. You really? Should, why didn't you do it? It, it was weird <laughs> things. Yeah. The only, the only faint, real, real, real famous person I ever met was a guy named Sheriff Lobo. <laughs> I, uh, uh, Chet, I can't remember his uh, government name right now. He's an actor. There's an old TV show called Sheriff Lobo. You would have to Google it. I think it had two seasons and it was a spinoff from BJ McKay and his best friend, Barry. <laughs> That's BJ oh, McKay. I'm, I'm looking it up Bear. right now. Yeah. Which BJ Lobo. McKay was a truck driver and he had, a chimpanzee with him sheriff lobo <laughs> but i met the actor that played sheriff lobo he he did some twilight zone episodes he was, he was a pretty well-known actor back then oh okay oh yeah but i was like uh, chet um yeah it's escaping me but i met him when i was like five years old and so <laughs> that's like really the only like real famous person i've ever met I, that's a lot that's well i'll say he's famous now i met jack Hankins. Yes, that's it. Yeah. Okay. What did he yeah. do? Now, now, now you got me curious what he's all done and everything. He, yeah. He's one of those faces you DJ see. DJ and the bear. Like, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's the cool thing about Google. Like, most yes. people, if we, if we didn't have the internet, everybody, people would Everybody, people everybody like, yeah. I tell is like, oh, man, you know all this stuff. I was like, dude, yeah. I'm not smart. I'm Google smart. Right. I'm, no, Google I, I'm the opposite. See, I'm the opposite. I, I will not. I'll try my best not to Google things. <laughs> because I have a theory that we are changing our brain patterns. Okay, well, actually, so you can. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah, making your okay. brain. Now, now there was this article that I was reading at one point in time. It's uh, uh, the difference between a person that talks about negative stuff and a person that talks positive stuff. Okay. A person that mm-hmm. talks positive stuff, the, their brain chemistry and everything is set up to talk positive because okay. they've only talked positive. Now, yeah. You can change that by just talking negative uh, ne- about negative things. Like today, uh, I, I stubbed my toe. I can't believe, it. and your brain literally uh, rewires itself to only think about negative thoughts. So, I believe that. I mean, you pop, you can do it both ways. Yeah, like if you have like a lot of trauma and everything like that, mm-hmm. all you're gonna and, and you let it get you down. You right. can get to the point where that's all you're going to be thinking. And I've, I've done that. I mean, I've had a, like a lot of bad stuff happen to me to the point where I was only thinking about negative thoughts and, and yeah. it's very unhealthy. 
I mean, you have yes. to. Look, it, it, it just is. Yeah. So twice in my career, um, twice, and this is the best part about working with like real motivated cops who, you know, you have a very serious assignment and everybody takes their job seriously. I've always been a positive person. Ski and I always push the whole PMA thing. It goes all the way back to like punk rock and positive mental attitude and just you, you visualize things and you just put it in motion. It doesn't mean you're happy 24 hours a day. It just means that things are not insurmountable. It just means you set your goals and you go after them. Well, twice in my career, I have had, I had a sergeant one time when I was a detective. I was starting to get negative. Like you said, it starts to kind of feed itself. Yeah. And there was, without going into a lot of detail, there was some stuff going on that everything was starting to become negative. And I was starting to express negativity at work, which was the polar opposite of how I really was. I was the guy that would walk in the room and say, that's not a problem that there's 35 gang members in this one set and they're shooting up the city. We're going to actually break the resolve and break the backbone of that set and disrupt everything they're doing. Like, it was just like, this is what we're going to do. Well, I was getting very negative in this sergeant. I was attached to his unit for a little while. He, he tells me, hey, man, come in the office, like, like 7 o'clock in the morning. Come in the office, man. I go in there. He's like, basically calls me out and says in so many words, you're being negative. This is the opposite of what you are. I can't take it anymore. I need you to get back to being the old you. I need that positivity. And by the way, you know, these G-Shine Bloods are shooting up this entire neighborhood every night. What are you going to do about it? And I'm, and it was like a wake. It, it sounds silly, but it was a punch in the face. Like, yeah, he's I mean, exactly I'm, right. He's exactly right. I'm letting all this stuff win. And, and really what's going to happen is the citizens are suffering because this neighborhood, exactly. this one apartment complex, they've got all this beef going on. And our job is to find those hives, those areas where all these gang members are hanging out. They're like safe area of operation or like their base of operation. Like we identify, we go in, we build our network of informants. And we just crush them. We disrupt everything they do. And because my negativity was winning or, or was, you know, the negativity was winning. He told me that. And I was like, it, it, it woke me up. And then yeah, flash sometimes forward, you just need yeah. that slap in the face. Yeah. So flash forward a couple of years later, um, I'm doing a different assignment. And a guy I had worked with for several years early in his career, he was a few years behind me. Um, he started seeing it when I was starting to get negative, like a lot of it, and a lot of it was was revolving around what was going on in our department and police culture in general, you know. So he pulled me aside, too, and was like, he was a little nicer about it, you know, tactful. But he was like, you know, I, I liked that you were always motivated. Like, even on the days when we were all tired and, you know, we're, we're having trouble, like, you were always the one that would pick people up and, and tell them, like, hey, we can do this. This is what we're going to do or whatever. And man, I felt terrible because I, I let it happen again. I let, I let, uh, as like Marcus Torgerson and some other guys say, like that negative insurgency come in. You know, you yeah. let the the gremlins kind of come in and go, yeah, we're just gonna sit around and complain about the the um, state of the department or the state of the news bashing us or whatever. And and it, like you said, you begin to set up um, your daily thoughts are being absorbed by all this negativity. And then you begin to say it, and then others around you are getting infected, and it's that just that cycle. Yeah, it's 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 literally like a disease. Yes. And yeah. after I started, and after that, I read that article, mm -hmm. uh, I got to the point where if like if I if I was hurting or anything like that, and 
And if it was something that I physically know I needed to get out and do something else, I would go do something else. Yeah. And yeah. One, it, 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 and it's so unbelievable. Once you figure out that you're down and out and you know you're going to have the these type of thoughts, not, you know, just just something that's going to bring you down and it's going to just weigh you down. Yeah. And you go out and you, I mean, there's exercise, there's, there's a hobbies and everything like that. Just get out and, you know, go seize the day on your own terms on something that you actually want to do. Or just small things. Like, that's why I tell people like very small things change a little bit. So if, and I'm horrible about this, like recently I I'm only getting like three or four hours of sleep a night sometimes. Cause mm-hmm. I've just, I've got all this other stuff that I'm trying to get done. And you know, like that there's just influences sometimes in your life and you're just, you're, you're having fun, you're enjoying things, but it's like my sleep patterns are off too. So, but I tell people like, if you wake up 10 minutes earlier, especially like if you're one of those people that wakes up at the last minute, you know, you get up, you hit snooze five different times. Now you're trying to scramble around to get coffee to wake up or whatever. And now you're, you're running behind and that the whole day is like catch up. And it's almost like, just set your alarm clock for like 10 minutes or 20 minutes earlier, have more discipline and know that after a day or two of doing that, you start to get in the habit and you go, okay, now you have a window of about five or 10 minutes to either catch your breath or move just a little bit slower in the morning and, and think about things and process your thoughts and go, okay, Hey, what do I want to do? Yeah. It sounds, um, hokey or a little bit weird but i started doing that back when i was in basic training in the army because i would get up early for high school anyway i sucked in high school i was a terrible student i just didn't care i really didn't like i wasn't mean or disruptive you're not you're the only one though right (laughs) right but we all kind of turned out all right (laughs) you know we all turned out all right but but when i got in basic training i realized every morning was like a friggin shark attack drills because i was at fort benning georgia right i was an infantry unit so every morning the drill sergeants come in and just thrash everybody. So my thought was, okay, we've got fire guard watch. So we know like uh, somebody's going to be, you know, you're rotating this fire guard where every hour somebody's switching up these two new privates have to guard. So I would take the fire guard roster and I would write on there to wake me up like 10 minutes prior to, to the, to the first call or whatever, like when you first get up. So I put on there like, wait, I did it every day. And so everyone thought like, you're an idiot, man. You're, you're losing 10 minutes of sleep, a precious sleep. But what I would do is the fire guard, the last person that had guard watch right before we do, you know, we wake up, they would come over and wake me up. I'd get up, slide out of my bunk, make my bunk real quick, tighten it up, make sure everything's dressed, right. Dress, go brush my teeth, shave, put on my PT clothing, you know, and I'm standing there with like five minutes to spare when everybody wakes up and it's complete chaos and I'm done. Like all my stuff squared away. 10 yeah, minutes I, was all I needed. 10 minutes. I ended up doing the same thing. Right? It, it, so it, it's it, that idea. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's always, it's one of those things that's just preparation. I mean, be Batman. Prep. Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah. he, he, he can take down anybody as long as you give him a little prep work. <laughs> Did you say Batman? Yeah, Batman. Okay. All right. So let me ask you a question. Okay. Uh, are you, uh, okay. We'll, we'll nerd out for two seconds if you're cool with it. Okay, okay, hold on, hold on. Before yeah. we totally know it out, how happy were you when you found out Hugh Jackman's reprising his role as Wolverine for the new <laughs> you know, just, like two, <laughs> two nights ago, I was uh, sitting in, in, in my house, and I'm just, like, watching trailers for, like, upcoming movies. 
and the Deadpool trailer or whatever, or, or whatever you want to call it, the trailer yeah. that said, and I was like, Ooh, okay. All right. Cause I am a big Deadpool fan. Right. Uh, uh-huh. and I haven't, and I have to confess, I haven't seen every X-Men movie or every whatever Wolverine movie or whatever. Not much. Right. Right. But that's what I was going to say. The ones I have seen, I was kind of, it fell kind of flat. I, 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 yeah. I after, after Brian senior, uh, and every, I mean, I watch it once. Yeah. Just to, I was like, man, that's kind of. I stopped so, wanting to get depressed. I didn't want to pay for it at theater. I'll wait and go. Right. <laughs> right. That's, that's what I'm saying. Is like here you have these. So the funny thing is, when I was a kid, my brother, I've got an older brother, and I always like joke about on Instagram how he was like that 1980s older brother that was always like busting your chops and and you know just just being. But he and I are like the best friends. He actually called me a few minutes ago. So I, I was like, damn, I, I'm, I'm busy, man. We're gonna talk, we'll talk later. Coolest guy in the world. And, and he doesn't really like sometimes, I think, when I, when I joke a lot and tell people about how it was when we were kids. But I always tell him, like, man, that prepped me for the military, for gang members. Like, nobody can, oh, yeah. nobody can, nobody can get him in, in my head, man. After you get into, right. like, basic and everything, and you have the drill sergeant yelling. <laughs> yeah, you're like, cool. And yeah. it's Tuesday. <laughs> right, right. So – when I was a kid, there was like this phase where I kind of broke away and did my own thing. I like got, I really got into art and I really started reading a lot of comics. So I was, I was probably about uh, 13, 14 ish, somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. And so he would just like, like mess around with me. Like, ah, oh, you nerd, you nerd, you know? And I was like, nah, dude, like I've always been a reader. I've always liked writing or the idea of writing. You know, I was even writing short stories then that I still have on notebook paper, like handwritten, like sci-fi stories and stuff. So anyway, I really got into comics, but what I loved best about it was I could buy, cause I was also like really thrifty. Like I started priming tobacco or, or started working in tobacco field when I was 13. So I was making like $5 an hour priming tobacco at 13. What, what is that? That means like when you take your ass out in the tobacco field and you're walking down the aisle or the rows and you're taking your hand, you stick it on this because tobacco grows on the stalk. So it's about okay. I don't know, three feet high or whatever, four feet high, but you, you stick your hand to the back of the stalk. And you put your, you put it right in the, in the web of your hand, rake your hand around in like a C motion around the bottom of the stalk or the lowest part of the stalk where the leaves okay. are. And you rake it, you put the leaves under your arm, you hit the next plant. So you're hunched over going down these rows in the South in the summer. Cause that's when tobacco grows. And then you get a big armful of these green tobacco leaves and put them on a trailer. And you keep doing that for about four hours in the morning. So it builds mental toughness and at 13 i was like i'm getting paid five dollars an hour cash untaxed because i'm 13 yeah and and i'm getting paid on friday and i'm getting about 20 i don't know 20 to 30 hours a week doing that and so when i would when i would prompt back that was my money so i was working hard for it but then i could go and buy a comic and potentially a year later or two years later sell it so there was a business side of it to me where I'm like, ooh, okay, all right. So we joke about it, but like one of the last comics that I remember buying or or getting and thinking, oh, maybe this will be worth something one day is the first like appearance of Deadpool. So it's and I, it's, it's not as pricey as you think. I think it's like uh, last time I checked, it's like $185. Right. So let's but do the math. But I, let's do the math. I paid like a dollar maybe yeah. for that comic. So if I invested same percentage in stocks you know what i'm saying so as a kid no no you're right, totally like, right so, i mean yeah so i used so to do that with magic cards too when i played okay. magic. 
All right. So I don't know about that. I don't know what that is. But so <laughs> it's like Pokemon or whatever you want. to. Oh, OK. I got you. I got you. Yeah, okay. It's a collectible card game. I got you. Um, so anyway, that was that was another aspect of it that I actually enjoyed because then I could actually sell them later down the road and, and make money, you know. Yeah. But I also love the story. So it's funny now because my brother will watch the movies and be like, all right, man, now I get it. Now I understand the whole storyline, the whole characters, the whole idea of Spider-Man's not just flying through the air, putting, you know, webbing on Green Goblin. Like there's a whole backstory of this kid who's broke, yeah. you know, and he's like, I mean, dating uh, Mary Jane. what was it? One, uh, one fourteen with the death of uh, Gwen Stacy. Gwen Stacy. I mean, that yeah. was, I mean, yeah. That was that was pretty harsh, but I ended up reading uh no uh the the Green Lantern series with uh Kyle Rayner. Okay. Uh, there's there's one with uh it was a villain called Major Force. Mm-hmm. And he at the end of the comic, what uh what he had done is he took Kyle Rayner's girlfriend and it, it's comic dumb. This is the worst thing a villain has ever done to somebody. Okay. Took his girlfriend killed her and stuffed her in the refrigerator and as soon as Greenlander shows up <laughs> he opens up the fucking refrigerator i'm like <laughs> i'm i'm like 13 at the time reading this yeah i'm like but is it is it but it's, <laughs> it's is it is it wrong that i don't like the green lantern so i'm kind of happy that that happened to me i was not a big fan of dc i mean, I mean so i want all bad things to happen to dc except batman <laughs> batman was cool but i don't I don't know why I would hate you so much. <laughs> I'm not. Yeah. I, no. I. It, my, my my thoughts are this. this is and I uh, with comics and everything like that. I everybody asked me was like, oh, are you Marvel guy? Or are you DC? Guy? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, I like crack. What do you mean? What do you mean you like crack? Are you gonna ask crack uh, crackhead what kind of crack he actually likes? No, because he just likes crack. I just like comics. He's like, yeah, right, right. So did you? So. Okay, I got into like at that time, Dark Horse was a like an independent comic company mm-hmm. that had the rights to like Aliens. Yeah, um, they had all the uh, Predator uh, stuff. Yeah, yeah, they had like Aliens, Predator, Sin City. Like, so Frank Miller jumped on board and was doing like Sin City. Mm-hmm. So I had like all that stuff when it first came out, and that was when I really was starting to get out of comics. But I loved the art and the ability to take a character from like the movie predator which is probably like the third greatest movie ever uh depending on what day of the week it is but no one I want of the greatest movies watch ever Craig right Craig was actually really good i did i did watch as a matter of fact and i was impressed thoroughly because it see it had that dark horse vibe to me yeah i, I thought so like because some of the predator movies got really i don't know i mean it started out as a movie but the comics had some really cool storylines the alien versus predator one the uh was kind of uh what was it the second one i couldn't i couldn't watch that one so i haven't i haven't watched yeah i haven't watched either one of those but i can tell you this when i was a kid i bought 10 copies of the of the miniseries aliens versus predator when it first came. really (laughs) and let me tell you i sold about seven or eight of those uh, six months to a year later and probably tripled my money. So like we said, if you pay $2 for a comic, but then it goes up to yeah $8 my, or $10. My biggest, my biggest sell on comics was uh, I ended up buying uh, First Prince, uh, first Appearance Punisher uh, for... Amazing Spider-Man 129? Yes. Is that what you speak of? Yeah. <laughs> I'm pushing my glasses up, as I said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But did you have uh-huh. it? <laughs> no, I've never even seen it in real life. 
And you're saying you had it. Had it only because okay. it's okay. This is the time frame when the Netflix uh, series came in, and I started oh, going okay. to cons and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you can check your messages right now because I sent you a message to show you how powerful a nerd I actually am. Oh, you sent me a message. Yeah. Okay, it's I got a you. Photo of me and a guy, uh, and he he's he he's. <gasps> <laughs> okay, go ahead. I'm, I'm listening. Go ahead. But uh no, I ended up buying it for like $180 and then I ended up selling it for like a grand. Damn, dude. So two th- three things. You just sent me a picture that I know what you're gonna say about the fucking t-shirt. No, I, I wasn't even thinking that. I was thinking that only can I say who you're with? Yeah. Only Stan Lee can wear a members only jacket and be the coolest dude on the planet. Yes. I love that man. I love Stanley, even from when I was a little kid and his voice will be on Spider-Man and his amazing friends. I was like, this guy, I, like, he's great. So two things. You got a picture with Stan the man Lee. Two, yeah. you not only touched the probably the greatest comic ever, I would imagine, comic book ever. And then you sold it and actually made a really good bit of money. Yeah, off of a really good profit. And and that, that was the thing is a lot of people uh, – hobbies okay i'm talking yeah. about hobbies and everything how like help out your sanity and sometimes it actually helps out your uh uh money yeah yeah this right here uh-huh. uh guy was a pharmacist mm-hmm. and he started he he did this as a hobby and now i mean that that's like uh a 250 right there Wow. Uh, he, he was a pharmacist. He didn't like his pharmacist uh, being a pharmacist. He had like uh, some family problems and everything, but he kept this up. And uh-huh. he, he, that's his main job now is making those flags, wooden flags. That, that's what I mean, too, about. <clears throat> I mean, the I was a- one right now is uh, Hafer, Evan Hafer. He loved oh, it, yeah. co- coffee was his hobby and everything. <laughs> right. And now he has like a one point six billion dollar company. Yeah. Once again, the idea, if one, you can motivate other people, yes. if you can have a clear business plan and stay focused and provide something that people like and want. And I'll tell you right now, like when I drink Black Rifle, there is a big difference between mm. Black Rifle coffee and, and other coffees. If and, you get, and some, and I, if you get the subscription and not the, I, I mean, they sell them at Walmart now. But I won't right. buy it from Walmart. I'll get the subscription. I have the executive uh, subscription, but I usually just I'll order it from them because you get it straight from the roast. Okay, that's the big that's yeah. the big difference. Yeah, I just know that I've ordered bags of coffee from them before, and 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 one of my routines is to drink it at the beach. You know, it's almost because it like and once again I'm I'm a cheap dude. Like I'm not going to buy expensive things all the time, but I will treat myself right. Yeah. So I don't I don't drink alcohol. So like maybe someone would go buy a very expensive whiskey or whatever people bourbon. Well, I think bourbon's like the big thing now. Like that's me. I'm like, all right, I'm going to buy, buy that QP of, uh, <laughs> of some black rifle, get that quarter pound, right. You weigh yeah. it out. But, but I'll, I'll, when I go to the beach, I'll drink, you know, some really good black rifle and wake up every morning, get on the beach and watch the sunrise and drink black rifle. And that's the difference. If the coffee wasn't good it wouldn't be that big of a business you know what i mean but yeah but his motivation and he and others i mean the the, <clears throat> the company's got uh, some great stories of employees and stuff but no oh, yeah yeah that whole idea though of just 
you find something, you find some niche, or you're Jack Kirby, and you're like, man, I got this pencil and I got this paper, dude. You and I got these no fists. Idea I can, how, yeah. Okay. He, even if he was around today, mm-hmm. uh, doing his art for the comics and everything, they, yeah. uh, I think it was his son or his daughter or something like that told everybody it was like he would not stop. He would do like twelve to fourteen issues mm. a day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because because he has to right like for for a lot of artists it's almost compulsive yeah, and, and that time frame yeah. how he made his yeah. money and everything but yeah still yeah there there's so, people that like uh 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 what's his name Romero Junior yes he's like uh-huh. I maybe do like two to three comics a day yeah. or I'll do <laughs> you know a couple of pages I was like yeah. oh so you're not at jack kirby speed now there's other <laughs> artists now there's ar- other artists that i understand reason why they take that much time like alex ross he Ooh, takes a lot yeah, of time yeah. because uh-huh. his stuff is just gorgeous yes yes that's how okay so when i was a kid i, I my, my like uh i i'd scrambled around to get like the first punisher regular issue Punisher War Journal, I think, had been around for a little bit. So I was, like, scrambling to get the first Punisher War Journal and to get the original Punisher five-part series that Mike Zeck uh, drew. Mm-hmm. And I can remember looking at Mike Zeck's work and just being – it was like it was so different than everybody else's. And I love the whole storyline of the Punisher. So now, like, I got to run it. Since we're talking about art, I got to get the uh, guy that does the packs for Black Rifle Coffee. Uh, <laughs> it's it like, hey, I can get the guy. I'm friends with him. I was like, dude. I, I, oh, are you talking about? Um, oh, man. There's a guy I follow on Instagram that I think does some stuff now for them. Uh, well, I don't know why my, my brain's blanking out, but he does some amazing artwork. Yeah, um, I, I keep the bags for yeah. the executive branch. I mean, okay. that one right there is just the uh, Lava Panther. It wasn't the ones they started up uh, here recently to where the whole – I mean, all the bags nowadays, uh, the, especially uh, for the uh, the executive coffee uh, bags, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they're just astounding. You could you can, like, put them up and just paste them yeah. on a board, and you have an art wall. They're that. Yeah. I mean, they just recent. I mean, this year they went to uh, uh, San Diego Comic Con, and uh, mm. just just the artists, yeah, uh, to go up there because the their artwork is just that good. Yeah, well, that's the thing too. Like when when I look back at like Todd McFarlane when he started doing comics, that I guy was, like, is just another beast, really. And he never went to art school. Yes, if I'm right. He never well, went to art school. Right? Here's even worse. Okay. Him and well, Alex Ross does it too. But look at his company, uh-huh. Tom McFarland Company. He does uh, artwork for his comics for Image Comics. Okay, uh-huh. but look at his models. Mm-hmm. All the models he, he's done models for sports uh, sports players. Yeah. Okay. Okay. He's done models for almost uh, uh, for like movie stuff and everything. He's yeah. done. It, it's and back in the day, to get a Todd McFarlane, uh, 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 I guess it'd be a model, like yeah, uh, statue. 
or a figure. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, figure, okay. statue. Yeah, statue, okay. Of whatever you wanted, as yeah. soon as you bought it, it was, it was, it was double yeah. your money. Yeah. Dude, he, when he, that was how I got into comics. Like, I was literally at a, we were going to Rocky Horror Picture Show. So I was a kid. I hung out with my older brother and all of his friends for the most part, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm like a little kid. I'm like, whatever, uh, 12 or 13, running around with them, trying to keep up with them at like these punk rock shows and stage diving and getting in the pit and all this stuff. And we're, we go to this mall and I see, a, a, a it's like a, whatever, B Dalton's or something. Mm-hmm. And I see this rack of comics. Now I had remembered like comics when I was a little bitty kid because my older cousin had read some, but I saw this amazing Spider-Man with the green goblin on the cover. And it was right around the time Todd McFarlane had really taken off with amazing Spider-Man. And I see it. And for whatever reason, man, cause I loved art, but I got fixated on that thing. I bought it, you know, cause I always had money. I bought that comic. And when I went home and read it, I was, I just, I probably read it four or five times, but I couldn't stop looking at art. And so then I started getting hooked. Like I said earlier, so then I kind of, kind of broke away from everybody. I would just do like, I would spend a lot of money on comics, and sit and read them but todd mcfarlane was the one who hooked me i was like man and the, yeah and the spider-man storyline was so cool because he was just this average like guy who's broke and going through all these things and also having these crazy adventures and fighting these super villains and, and i'm like 13 or 14 but i have a when the spider-man series came out it's just called spider-man and todd mcfarlane drew yeah he did uh and wrote it was like four or five variants yes Yes, he did. You're right. So I have, I think it's like the gold cover, if I remember right. I still have it. Signed by Todd McFarlane. Oh, nice. I had two of them. And I actually gave one to a buddy of mine as like a like a gift, right? And I so I only have one now. But I mean, when I when I had that thing, I was like 14 years old, maybe. Yeah. Or maybe, maybe I was pushing 15. I think I was 14. It's like right when I was getting kind of out of comics, they were getting it more expensive. And I was getting back into music and just kind of, you know, starting to live a different life dating and stuff. So then I was like, all right, I need money for more other stuff. I'm going to hang on to these comics though and sell them it off, you know, throughout the next few years and, and make money off of these things. But I always, throughout my whole life, I always went back to the whole idea of, these characters and how it shaped me and probably now like when i write like i'm i just finished a full rough manuscript of a fictional novel that mm-hmm. i got to go back and edit it and do some transitions but i have a connection with a major publisher so i just have to get it sent in and see and it I'm, made. I'm, I'm getting right. jealous of everybody because i have all these ideas and everything it's just i can't when you do see, it, it I, I, okay, yeah. okay here's my problem okay my problem is if you actually see me write, everybody else when they're writing, like, do, 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 do. me okay. when you see me write, it's like, and I go in hard focus and everything, uh-huh. and I get excited about the story and everything, and I start yeah. seeing it in my head. Yes. Okay. And, and, and I have to, I'm pacing. Yeah. So okay. I, 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 I literally, I think what I need to do is, is I need to verbally do it, even verbally, telling the story and everything like that. And get somebody so, and everything. It's just it, my you're age, saying that you're yeah, saying you, you you're saying you can't sit still and write. 
you want to get up and walk, but the thoughts are going through your head. The images are playing out. Yeah, I, I mean, so if you I had like tried to do a walk and record, uh, record it and everything, I yes, was talking yeah. and everything, and yeah. it still, it, for someone, I just like, are you talking about like Dragon software or whatever, like where you're talking and it's transcribing what you're saying onto a page? What do you need voice message or uh, voice okay. memo? Or There's supposed to be some software, like, I don't have it, but, like, it's, I think it's called Dragon Software or something, but you speak into the microphone. And so if you were telling the story, because, mm-hmm. like, it's playing out in your head, but you're walking, you know, you're having to stay active, you can't just sit there and type, then it it transcribes it on a page, like a, like, almost like a Word document, the way I understand it, and it just transcribes everything you're saying. So then you could literally, you wouldn't have to go back and now type it, it would just write it for you as you, if, if that's the technique for me, it plays out in my head. And I, and when I'm typing, I was telling somebody this the other day, when I'm typing, it's very similar probably to when someone's playing an instrument, their, okay. their fingers are playing the guitar, the drums or whatever. It's rhythmic. It feels right to them. Or maybe like if I'm shooting, right. So if I'm, I'm transitioning, I'm shooting, I'm reloading and I'm, I'm clear malfunctions. It feels like very natural to me. Yeah, when okay. I'm writing, when I'm writing on a keyboard, it feels like that, probably like a, like a, a instrument. And I'm typing as fast as I possibly can to keep up with the story. Yeah. And it plays out in my head. And I literally get up and I will write on like a Saturday and Sunday. I'll write from like 530 when I get to the coffee shop until about one or two in the afternoon. And when I'm writing, this book has played out in my head. And, and this book is one of, I've got about six ideas, all completely different. And all these characters loosely cross over with one another. So it's almost like um, if you ever read William Faulkner, like the Snoke family and all these characters kind of cross over a little bit. But as I'm writing, man, it's playing out. I don't know what's going to happen, though, which is weird. So I don't know how these characters are going to end up. And then sometimes I'm like, damn, dude, I didn't even think about that kid getting killed. Well, he got killed. He got killed today. It's kind of sad. It could be worse. You could have the uh, writing of uh, Robert E. Howard. Uh, who's that? I don't know if I know that. Conan oh, the Barbarian. Oh, Conan oh, Barbarian. oh, okay. Yeah. This is how messed up this guy was, okay? Okay. He would board up all of his windows, take a shit ton of LSD, and he would Ooh. think that Conan was right behind him with an axe, ready to oh, chop man. his head off. And he would write the stories of Conan the Barbarian and Cole the Conqueror and all this stuff. Wow. And he wouldn't budge for three days. He he would write a book in three days. That's crazy. Yes. Like I like I I could I can't write a book in three days, but I probably also couldn't take LSD and write. Like well, he I was, would, he was scared. <laughs> he 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 literally. Of course, he ended up uh, graping him, uh, not graping himself, uh, 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 unlifing himself. Oh wow! Okay. And uh, <laughs> he ended up. He it, but he had like really great stories, but he, the stories of him actually making the stories or writing the stories. Yeah, is a story. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Like there's a there, I think it's uh William Faulkner's hmm, I think it's as I lay dying, right? I think it's when he wrote that book, he was working like as a security guard or something, and he sat down and wrote supposedly wrote the whole book from beginning to end in like not one sitting, I don't think, but like like constantly writing 
for a day or two. And that was it. Done. No edits, nothing. That's the book. Put it out there. That's what I have heard throughout the years. I don't know how true that is, but I do know that if you read that book, to me anyway, it's amazing. And if he did it that way, that's absolutely incredible. But I do think people do have something in their brain. The more you write, like at least for me, the more I write, the easier it becomes. Yeah, well, that's and the, and the easier the characters really. Yeah. What was it? Was it uh, ten thousand hours? Ten thousand hours. Know. Once you uh, start doing stuff. Oh, oh, okay. Like, you. like yeah. if you practice for ten thousand hours, by yes. the thousand hour mark, you'll be like a master. Yes. Well, that would make that would make sense. But but like so, when I get in the rhythm and and I'm not getting called into work and breaking up that pattern. When I can write every weekend, which I did that for, for, I was pretty consistent for several months, and I'm still trying to just crank out my edits and, and final version. But when I can do that one, I, I feel at peace. Just but get Grammarly. What's, what'd you just say, man? Get Grammarly? Yeah. Man, that, listen to me. You ever see, you know what Skynet is? You know oh, what Skynet on. is? Grammarly is the first version of Skynet. You can mark it now. Don't give up the brain, man. Battle, battle that grammar. Cause I, I mean, <laughs> I grew up okay, in South. Okay. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a dyslexic story. Okay. Yeah. Cause I got, I got severe dyslexia. ADHD. Okay. okay. Uh huh. Me and a friend of mine, we played D and D. He wanted to get like a calendar date book so he could uh, plan out the adventures and everything that we were playing. Okay. We go up to Hoffa's Depot. He get gets we go we go to the date uh date book aisle. He's like, dude, this is really strange. And mind you, he's a severe dyslexic too. Okay. Grabs one of the books. He's like, dude, this is this dictionary is really strange. I'm like, dictionary. Oh, oh. And, and and I was going through the process thinking, why why would a dictionary be over here? I mean, I guess someone left it there. I mean, I'm gullible like that. <laughs> I thought he was joking with me. Okay. But okay. Oh, I flipped through it. There's no words or anything. Blank pages. Looked on the side. I was like, "You dumbass! It's a, it's a diary." Are you? Are you? <laughs> he hand to God thought it was a dictionary, <laughs> and I played into his little trap and his world and everything. I was like, "Dude, funny joke, haha!" No, it's it's not a joke. I was like, "Ha ha ha." You're my best friend in the whole world, but this right. is, this is kind of no. He legitimately thought it was a diary, a dictionary. A dictionary. <laughs> his his brains. That's how yeah. bad. Gotcha. My, like I mean, that's the reason why I'm like Google smart right now, only because I'll yeah. I'll I, I have. To, that's another thing that stops me is trying yeah. to find the right words or the right spelling of words and everything like yeah. that. Yeah. And well, it is uh, frustrating. Yeah, yeah, not, now, yeah. I power through it. I, I have a couple yeah. of story, like short really? stories that I need to finish up. But you know, yeah. it's just so yeah. So frustrating. I, yeah, I was joking about Grammarly. I I do get frustrated with like autocorrect and things like that because it starts to change your brain. It almost like starts to make your brain relax and not think about spelling and not think about well, how the words. Think about but, this way. How many how many friends' numbers do you, did you memorize back in the eighties or when you were a little? Right, kid? right. I still you have. Know, yeah. You know now. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Used you don't. As number like it, off right. the beat of my head. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't. I just, <clears throat> yeah. I have to look that stuff up. Yeah. So when you're talking about like um, dyslexia or like writing, so when I was a kid, I had reading comprehension issues. 
mm-hmm. could I could read out loud in class like two or three syllable words and could read it at a, at a decent <clears throat> speed or pace. So it sounded like I knew what I was talking about. I had no clue. I would read and my brain would not retain or try to comprehend it or picture it or imagine it. And so I had to start going to reading labs. They would pull me out of class and I would go to a private reading lab with the teacher. Yeah. She would work on that. And that was like the first time I remember thinking, well, I'm a little bit different than everybody, you know, and really, and, and obviously as I got older, I, I went to college after the army and I got a degree in psychology and, I, and, and obviously I learned everyone's a little different. Everyone's brain operates a little differently, but yeah. what I ended up doing is working so hard in those reading labs and to try to comprehend reading. I almost went overboard. So then when I would read things, my brain would picture it very um, detailed, like, like with a lot of detail. So now when I'm writing and these stories are, are kind of playing out, I can see everything. It's like, I'm just watching the movie and I'm, and I'm writing and there's a voice in my head of this character talking to this character. And, and sometimes like the way I have no clue, like I'll literally write for two hours. I don't do any corrections. I don't even try to like spell anything correctly. You know, there's a a little, there's a little, it's just like a little quirk that I think, you know, and you, you think about these things of how, how people can actually come up with these great stories and everything. Some people like him in the way they'll go live it or, yeah. or, or Jack Carr does the same thing. He goes live. It. He, he's yeah. lived as a seal. That's the reason why he can do seal, uh, write about seal stuff. Right. Yeah. Now stuff like Stan Lee and everything like that. Now this is going to blow your mind. What if they actually can see into different dimensions and everything? And that's what they're writing. Yes, I, I, I believe that. I believe that <clears throat> they're like tapping into. Um, okay, so here's an example. We're going to come back to some of this. So here's a, a good example. The movie Unbreakable, right? M. Night okay. Shyamalan. Probably one of the greatest movies ever as well. But people, for some reason, forget about it. They're not big fans now because they're, the still shots are, are dramatic and they want you know shaky cameras and explosions. Yeah. But the whole idea in Unbreakable of human beings who are like real life superheroes. Well, even, or, or, even Dan Lee did like a TV series that uh, that yes. the people were like uh, above and beyond most people. Now. Yeah, yeah, like the dude who was like he would um, like electricity would just flow through his body. Yeah, I, I know what you're talking about because the host was a contortionist, if I remember. Mm-hmm. Right. It was yeah. a guy who could, but. So I remember like one episode where a guy could eat like light bulbs and glass and yeah. nuts and bolts and it oh, didn't yeah. bother him. Yeah, yeah. And then there was a guy who electricity would flow through his body. I think he was in India maybe or somewhere. Yeah. But but no, that was a really cool show because the same thing. There's or that one think, guy that could go under like icy water for like twenty minutes or something. Yeah, like that. yeah. And there was a guy that they went into uh higher elevations he was just a regular dude i can't remember where he was but they put him in like a chamber like a pressurized chamber uh-huh and so people were in there who if i remember right i could be mixing this up but were like halo jumpers you know high altitude low yeah openings, yeah, they did, yeah. And stuff. Uh, no uh and, uh parasail but not parasail the, the squirrel suits yeah so that yeah so people were in that chamber who are used to very high altitude and as they're changing the i guess the air pressure or whatever they start passing out and this average dude's just sitting over there 
for whatever reason, his body was created and it would not, um, it wouldn't whatever capitulate to the, to the air pressure. It was like, he, he was fine. Yeah. That stuff blows my mind. We had a guy when we were, uh, when I was working corrections that he was immune to the CO grass. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's creepy. That freaked me the freak out. Yeah. Yeah. It sucks because then you're like, Whoa, I was, I was in the army with a dude who we went in the CS chamber, right? Mm -hmm. So you go in there, you know that everybody's been in there. Yeah. It sucks or whatever. So, uh, we would have to do it every year. So in our unit, you go back to the CS chamber. So glad I was there. Or tear gas, you know? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the bad thing is when you go with your unit, they can do whatever they want to do. Yeah. So they're just like torturing you in there. And it's a lot of fun to the, the leaders, you know? Well, this one guy we had was completely immune to tear gas and it sucked. Everybody was jealous of him because we would go in there and you're having to like recite, you know, the maximum effective range of whatever weapon system or, you know, they're just like, they're quizzing you like, you know, what's covered by obstacles, you know, how do you call a, call a fire mission and you're, <laughs> you're, you're can't breathe. And all. and this dude is just over there just hanging out and they're trying to smoke him and make him do push-ups and flutter kicks and, and it has no effect on him. And I remember thinking like, if I could just change one thing with anybody in life right now, I would want to be <laughs> this guy who the tear gas doesn't seem to bother at all. And of course on the job, you know, there's like, um, about 5% of the population that pepper spray is ineffective. Yeah. So, you know, people, people often will go, Oh, well, cops have pepper spray and they have tasers and they have batons. And why would they ever punch or strike somebody or whatever without getting into all that? It's not a good feeling when you go or to the dudes that are immune to freaking tasers. Well, right, right. You can, okay. Was, so I'll I've get back to that. that. Yeah. Yeah. I've yes. Guy, he got, he was getting shocked and he's like, yeah, really guys. I'm like, yeah. Oh, no. So a lot of times too, you're, yeah, you're dealing with darts that are having to enter the body. And then the, and then the electrician or the electrician, the uh, electricity <laughs> is flowing between that arc, you know? Yeah. So if you're wearing like a puffy jacket or it's wintertime and you got a couple of layers on or a Carhartt jacket or something real thick, those yeah, probes are not going to go through. So if someone depends on, Oh, I'm just going to tase somebody. And they oh no, this dude didn't have a shirt on or anything. And oh. I thought he was like on PV, PCP or angel dust uh, yeah, or something. Or he just could be so committed that he, he was, he yeah. was, he was, but, but, but pepper yeah. spray, man, like I used to get mad when, when other officers would pull pepper spray out. Cause one, if I'm here and you're here, that means there's two of us on one person. I don't need you contaminating everybody and, and choking me up. Like, yeah. Let's just deal with what we That's have. That's the reason why I, ne- I, I never pulled my pepper spray, and all yeah. the inmates knew I wouldn't pe- uh, pepper them, but I would yeah. crap out of them. Well, right. And that means, you know, 20 years ago when I first started, that was – you you had some tools, but we didn't have tasers yet. Like, they were existed, but it was just our department had not spent the money and transitioned in. Now, the nice thing about it, when we did get tasers, we had this instructor who is like the end-all, be-all with, uh, arrest techniques and tasers and like he just started studying he's like a genius and he mm-hmm. started studying the taser and doing all these experiments and so he had a pool of officers that he would test things on and that guy had been tased i don't know 20 or 30 different times he was trying to figure out is there a way to physically fight through it you know like if you are an inmate or you're a gang member or you're somebody who is not like scared to death of being tased and the fight's on and you're like all right they're going to tase me and you're mentally prepping for it. So this dude used to try to fight through being tased to see if 
your brain can overpower that uh, impulse to tighten up because you don't like when you get tased, like when I got the first time I got tased, I'm like, <laughs> it felt like my spine was being twisted and set on fire yeah. for five seconds. <laughs> and I swore that when he tased me that he was playing around and tased me for like 30 seconds. It felt like that, you know? Oh yeah. But this idea of if you know what it feels like, then the next time, like getting pepper sprayed, you get pepper sprayed a few times. You're like, all right, I know it's going to burn. I know it's going to hurt. I'm just going to shove my finger up and open up my eyelid because it keeps inv- involuntarily closed. I'm going to shove my eyelid open so I can at least see. And if I have to, I'm just going to breathe, try to breathe everything out of my lungs and get, the, get this stuff cleared. But it's going to suck, but I still got to stay in the fight, right? Mm-hmm. But, but when, when tasers got on the scene, there were other departments that would basically give you a 20-minute class or 30-minute and say, well, from now on, if somebody says they're not going to jail, just tase them. And so there was that era of officers tasing people that were really passive. You know, a lot of dudes would be like, well, I'm not going to jail today. So you, we're going to be, you know, we're just going to fight. And you're like, okay, well, let's fight. <laughs> and then they go, no, nah, I'm just messing with you, man. All right, take me to jail. But people, but other agencies were, were popping people with tasers and they're dropping and hitting like coffee tables and cracking their skulls or running, like fleeing from them and they tase them. And really they, they're not like a violent felon. They're not wanted for a shooting or anything. It's like shoplifting. But when they're running and they tase them and now they can't break their fall and they hit a curb and crack a vertebrae or crack yeah. a frontal lobe. Back, back then it was like, it, people thought it was a quick fix. And so we always talk oh, about like, no. like police work is not clean and we try to use as many techniques and tools as we can so that we can, can get somebody under control. But there are times when the fight is on, like when, it, when a guy puts his hand in a waistband and he's pulling a gun out and you're already up on him, you have to decide now, am I going to push away and draw my pistol? And, and now that we've created distance and he's got his hand on the gun, I could lose that gunfight very quickly. Or am I going to stay up on him and wrap him up? And can I, can I trap his hand, draw my pistol, and put around in his thigh, his foot? You know, like there's, there's a uh, um, company right now, Rogue Methods, and Raul Martinez uh, is going around doing this training and stuff that he's kind of developing. And it's, it's very similar to that. It's this, this idea that we've all, like a lot of people have experienced it in the street, but he's putting it in a really cool format where people are learning you can shoot anybody anywhere on the body. You know what I mean? Like if you got to draw your pistol and you're grappling, you need, maybe you need to stay in close because once you break that distance and they and they get their pistol out and you're tr- scrambling for yours, you can get shot and killed where if you stay up close and you trap that arm, you draw your pistol and just start putting rounds in them. It's, it's deadly force is deadly force. Well, yeah. that's what a lot of uh, uh, people after, after a while in the military, when they were, uh, in uh, Iraq and uh, uh, Afghanistan, when they actually started getting body armor and everything, they just like ended up telling us like, "Don't aim for the chest, aim for the fucking balls." Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, because I mean, unless you have like a steel uh, cup there, yeah, that there's a lot of vital organs there. Yeah, well, also, and if you, if you can if you can shatter the the pelvic bone, you're gonna it's like, like we call it the platform shot, you know. So we would always train you know, years ago for center mass, because it's easier to, to hit, you know, center mass target. But if, if, you know, there are cases where people are taking rounds in the body and they're still moving. If you have the presence of mind to then try to shift down and shoot in the, in the pelvic region, you shatter the pelvic bone 
then the then the legs almost like that the body will collapse. And so yeah. we're fortunate in, in in America to have all this wealth of research and go, okay, in this shooting incident, what worked? Oh, okay. You know, one one case we studied, a guy actually did that. He was a competition shooter, he was a firearms instructor. And I want to say this was back in the era of revolvers. And so he would teach that. He would teach, you know, center mass, but you've got six shots, <laughs> you know. If you're firing two or three and they're still coming at you, start to start to lower your aim. And uh, he had a guy charging him with a knife. And so he's pumping rounds into him and he has to do a, basically like what he would train as the platform shot. And he put, I think, two rounds in the pelvic uh, bone, shattered the guy's pelvic bone. And when he, the guy came to rest, landing on the ground, he was like a foot and a half from the officer and the officer's revolver was empty. Oh, so you know what a revolver you got to yeah. dump those six rounds and speed load six more which is hard to do when you're stressed and a guy's coming at you with a knife so had he not done those platform shots that guy probably would have been on top of him he's out of rounds and he's stabbing him up you know it's it's crazy too like that a lot of people who don't deal in this realm of violence yeah, because the- it, like like i was saying with the uh the guy with i mean i've i've heard so many stories about uh uh, PCP, yeah, yeah, uh, and I, there was one cop that they literally, the guy wasn't running; he was walking on the road, uh-huh. and he had walked so far on a broken foot or a broken ankle uh-huh. that his foot was gone. Ugh. Yeah, Ugh. he it, it, but they don't feel that there's the nerve receptors. Yeah, yeah, there's. Yeah. There's another funny story I did though. I had this guy. This is this is right before I went in the Air Force. Uh, my friends came around. We we had like a, a party night. We weren't getting drunk or anything. We we're just hanging out, doing crazy stuff, playing video games and stuff, you know. And uh, we had this one cat. He was uh, uh, he he just started working at the correctional uh, as a correctional officer. The unit that I ended eventually would go to. Okay, and. You know, when you're a kid and you think you have all this power and everything like that, you think you can take on the world. Uh-huh. I was always, I'm always a realist. If if I see something I can't take and I know it, I can't take. I need to get help and everything like that. Yeah. And he was talking. He was like, I could take. We were watching this series about <laughs> like Michael Myers and uh, uh, crazy people in okay. general. And I was I was telling him that story of how some people they just they they're just so far off that you can't hurt them yes yeah you're you're on that he's like no i can my friends had to go uh go pick up some soda they came back they heard the story so they go around they're just start banging around on the house (laughs) this guy's like freaking out he literally had a stick probably about that big about Uh two feet long yeah gripping it in the center of this living room going (laughs) crying because he was so scared (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah but there are yeah it is a creepy thing when you see someone who is either like in a psychosis or had they're born with just such a high threshold or a pain threshold or whatever you call Mm -hmm. it um it's like in the police academy we had a guy he was off the charts intelligent everything that they said in that academy his brain would retain it 
right? So he was just getting hundreds on his exams and really nice guy, but he was like real soft-spoken. And we had an instructor who came in, really nice guy, but he was like, his background was Marine Corps, riot control, you know, like, so he's teaching these techniques, um, like during arrest techniques and, and riot control. And so basically he, he calls this guy out because at a, when you look at this guy's appearance, he was very like thin framed. He just kind of looked like an, like a, just an average dude. Like he, like he did not want to fight someone. Yeah. So they, he calls him out and he's like, you know, here, you're going to use some, some whatever pain compliance techniques. And we all start kind of laughing to ourselves. Cause we know this guy, you know, you're in the police Academy. You have to shower together. You're living together. You know, you start to, to learn everybody's kind of idiosyncrasies, whatever. And we all knew this guy, like his back, like why this is about to be funny. And so this dude like starts putting all these different techniques and, you know, uh, jugular notch and all this stuff or whatever, and nothing's working. And the guy's just standing there and he's wearing like these, he had like almost like birth control glasses issued from the army, you know, the old yeah. BC goggles or whatever yeah. from the military. And he's wearing these things and he's about 160 pounds. And this instructor is getting frustrated because all his techniques are not working because he's, he's prefacing it with like, and then you do this ridge hand under the nose. And, and when you do this, now you'll see he'll drop to his knees, you know, and it's like nothing's working because this guy almost could not feel pain to the point where, yeah. Yeah, to the point where we were running one day, and he tripped and fell, uh, and cracked, like, almost like cracked his kneecap. His kneecap's fucking, mm. or excuse me, his kneecap is dripping blood, but he's still running. And, and to the point where the instructors had to say, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa!" Like, stop, get on the truck, go get your knee checked out. But he couldn't feel pain, man. But it was so cool because here's this instructor who thinks he's going to use these techniques, and because he thought he was picking somebody who physically didn't seem as dominating or whatever. And the guy can't really feel pain. So it's like, you know, you, you meet these people and go, dude, on the street, that would be great. Like, to, you know, you get punched in the face. You don't even really, you don't even really feel. I was it. reading, I was reading this uh, story. Uh, well, not story. I was reading this book. It was uh, about karate. The difference between American karate and uh, Japan, uh, Japanese karate. Okay. Uh, there was one part of the story though that uh, came to mind was uh, toughness. Mm-hmm. A lot of people's perception of toughness is I can beat beat people up. I'm tough. I can beat people up. Yeah. And one of the grandmasters, when they were talking, was like, "Hey, who's the toughest guy?" And I was like, "Oh, this guy because he can beat anybody up, or <laughs> this guy he can he can put you in the ground and and put you in a hold." And the grandmaster just goes up. It was a, this one dude that I was fighting, and he had no give to the point. Oh, it, 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 you know those people that just – you can put them yeah. down, beat them up. They're all yeah. scarred up and everything like that, uh-huh. and they still get up, and they yeah. still will go, okay. Or like, like Captain America is like, ah, I can do this all day. All day. Yeah. There's this, there is something to – switching you know like like flipping that switch and when i was a kid that's what i would have to do because i would fight the older kids in the neighborhood or my brother or you know and there was this idea that i knew i couldn't beat him like my you know my brother and i are three years apart so there were certain years where there's no way i would win a fight but i would do everything i could to make him mad and flustered (laughs) and show him yeah you're punching me but it's it's not affecting me until he'd start punching in the face or the, <laughs> the back of the neck. And then I'm knocked out. So then I'm like, all right, that doesn't work. <laughs> that doesn't work too well. Um, 
But I love that whole idea. <laughs> I just, like, just imagine that. I'm tough. Okay, never mind. Let me tell you something, man. We went at it one time in our kitchen, and I don't know what why I thought this was a good idea. But we got into an argument, and he had a hooded sweatshirt on. He's probably about 14, maybe 15. And he's he was like back then, he was just kind of like muscular because we worked tobacco. We worked, you know, we, we cut grass. We were always working, you know, mm-hmm. pulling pumps and, and stuff like that and putting in beer systems with this dude. We were always finding these odd jobs. So physically, you know, we were, we were, we were getting exercise, but he was, he always kind of was like, like lean, you know, muscular. But anyway, we get in this argument in our kitchen and we live in a very small rental home and a uh, single mother, you know, she was working two jobs sometimes, but this fool's wearing a hooded sweatshirt with his hood up in the kitchen. Now, for whatever reason, I thought this is going to be a good technique. When we square off, I grab the front of the hood and pull it down and then just start punching him, man. As hard as oh, I basically, can. Did you, do, did you do the hockey stuff? Yeah, but we didn't know hockey because we were in the South. Oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought hockey was a made up sport. I didn't know that stuff was real. I, I, I remember seeing like five minutes of uh Paul Newman's slap shot movie came on like yeah. TV when I was a kid. So that was what I knew hockey was, was like something in the movies. Cause I was in the South. We didn't have hockey, but yes, it's that technique where you would pull the Jersey over, but I grabbed the hood of his um, hoodie, pull it down. And man, I'm just like hitting his face as hard as I can. And, and in my mind, I'm like Rocky Balboa just, hitting the racks of ribs man i'm like and and i'm thinking when i let go he's gonna fall down like in the movies and i'm just gonna stand over him like i'm the man right the the whole movie thing there was another thing is is once you hit somebody they go down that doesn't yeah no 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 yeah this is what happens you hear this like i'm like i'm i probably put about 10 or 15 punches in there man i was pretty proud of myself I let go of his hoodie, and all he does is stand up and flip that hood back and goes, oh, you want to hit in the face now? And I took off running down our hall. With our Like I said, I live in a small house. So about three steps, he's on top of me. And he tackles me and just starts drilling me, dude. And that was when I realized, oh, all this time, he's been holding back from punching me in the face. <laughs> but I broke the unbreakable rule, and now I'm going to suffer, right? So then yeah, I, that was you're done. That you're was, like, yeah, I, I missed. <laughs> that was, I was like, <laughs> you know, that like crying where you can't catch your breath, you know, and you're all like, uh, you're or, balled up. Or, or that one scene in Rick and Morty where they're just like, ah, <laughs> I can't believe we got away from that. <laughs> right. So I lived. that's also like when I learned that uh, my visions <laughs> of success are not always what I think they're going to be, and that movies are sometimes wrong. Uh, so no, we, we, me, and, we, me and Tansy were talking about that documentary about uh, the the cop documentary called Cobra. That's, that's, <laughs> how, that's how cops act, right? <laughs> Look, Cobra was legit, man. Yeah, that was legit back in the day. It's terrified. I watched, me. It, I watched it now because I, yeah. I don't know why it came up. I wanted to watch some. Want to watch old cop movie? Yeah, back in the day, and Cobra came up. <laughs> And I was, I was watching it. I was like, <laughs> yeah, I thought this was cool. Yeah, exactly. It still is cool. But okay. It, it is cool. It's cool. Like in a retro way, like yes. in a, in a, yeah. a grind house planet terror way, maybe or something. Well, but like, when it, hmm? it's like watching like Cobra, then you switch over to the terminal list. You actually see something like, like make believe. And I, I'll, I'll let you finish your stuff, but there's there's another thing 
that uh, I found out about those 80s movies with Arnold and uh, Sylvester Stallone. The reason yeah. why their guns got bigger is because they were having a competition. Oh, really? A legitimate competition. Who had who had the bigger gun? Who had the bigger knife? Who had the bigger <laughs> Oh, my gosh. That's funny. I mean, like, they literally said that. Yeah, I could believe it, man. I could believe it back then. So when you talk about Cobra, when I first saw Cobra's when it came out, and I was a, I was a little kid or a young kid, I was old enough to know this is a movie, but also old enough to be like, oh, my God, there are axe-clanging gangs in the streets that are going to, like, just kill people. And that, that dude with the, like, jaw muscles that was the main, like, villain yeah. absolutely terrified me. But then Flash Forward, or not Flash Forward, but, like, at that same era, there's a movie you could go back and watch now that is still one of the best cop movies ever. It's called Nighthawks, and it's Sylvester yes. Stallone. Yes. Yes. And Billy D. Williams. Yes. Man, I tell people that all the time. Like, we're going to get back to Tansy too, but I tell people all the time, watch Nighthawks. Yes. Because when, when people make fun of Stallone or like that he's this, you know, character or not, that dude was, was a great actor in that movie. Billy D was amazing. And they were great. They were a great duo. And it was a great history lesson in like, hey, how this is the evolution of terrorism coming to America. This is, this is what terrorism and law enforcement will be dealing with in the future. Now, even though it's not a futuristic movie, New York and L.A. are always kind of like a, ahead of everybody. So it's almost like the beginning of the Joint Terrorism Task Force, where you have NYPD, FBI, you know, all these other agencies, and everybody's kind of sharing a brain. And then uh, every other agency starts to do that. So, so my department, same thing. We have JTTF people, and that's what they do. They, they go after, you know, terrorists. So Nighthawks is a, an amazing movie, and I don't know why it doesn't. Go back and watch, rewatch that one. Dude, I watched it, I don't know, like last year maybe. So like when we, okay, so two, yeah. You get, get one on those kicks. Cause last, last movie yeah. I got a kick in the, that I needed to watch was Monster Squad. Monster Squad is great, dude. I know. It's so good. Kick like them in every, the nards. Kick them in the nards. Boy, yeah. don't have nards. <laughs> Boom. Yeah. yeah. It has nards. <laughs> right, right. Stephen King rules. <laughs> Kid with his shirt, right? Yeah. So so your boy Tansy, um, he and I were talking. Uh, I did a podcast just for a little while with the guy, Jason Piccolo. And yeah. we would just talk about movies. So we would have a guest come on. And while Tansy is like this hilarious dude, but he's so locked on professionally. You know what I mean? Like he's got so much stuff going on and he preps for his shows and all that. So like when he was a guest on our show, uh, we were doing point break. We were talking about point break. Okay. And so he's got like a surfing background. Tansy does. And uh, like point break. I think we even talked about North shore maybe, or maybe he and I talked about it in a conversation one day or something, but, um, but man, when he came on the show, we were talking about point break and he's just like rattling off all these facts and stuff like that. So that guy, and I know he was on your show, uh, maybe was it like last month, maybe, or several, it was about several two months ago, back, yeah. something like that. Yeah. So he's just, he's hilarious. He's got, he's working on, uh, putting a book out soon. Yeah. I'm going to have know? him on. I'm going to have him on again, like, uh, almost the end of October to promote the book. So yeah. Yeah. Cool dude, dude. Like he, oh yeah, he, he was in some of my gang gang training and, um, he and I just like, you know, we've, we've always kind of kept in touch and talked and all that. So then when he, he had me on as a guest on failure to stop, uh, twice or yeah, twice I did 
like gang. So I talked all about my gang background and because like I said, he had been through some of my classes. Um, and then when we started the disruptors, we were with them for a little while and we, we couldn't keep pace. We couldn't keep the schedule. Um, yeah. Which sucks because that dude is great. He, uh, I mean, they're, they're cranking out four shows a week, I think. Yeah. He I'm, does a, like a, I'm at, I'm at three and I can, it, it's that's crazy, man. It's, it's tough. crazy. It's so like he does, he does one. Like that. Yeah. He does one on Tuesday nights with, um, Andrea, like his yeah. co-host. And so she does like the true crime. She'll, she'll go over a true crime case and he'll either talk more about like, okay, this is the, the cop side of it. Yeah. The police side. Yeah. 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 But they just got a good chemistry because they've known each other forever. So it's mm-hmm. kind of, it's interesting because he'll crack jokes or whatever. They may tell like a little side story or whatever. Um, but, but they also do it live. So there's like always comments and stuff on YouTube and like people, you know, go on and watch or whatever, but it's cool to watch how motivated he is and all the stuff he's into. And then on top of that, writing a book that I'm excited to read it because I know some of his background and I know some of not, I don't know all of his stories, which are cool because he's a great storyteller, but I, but I got a feeling that book is going to be pretty squared away. Like a lot of people are going to dig it because the way he tells the story, I was like, uh, and I totally forgot to ask you, uh, but it, it was his, his story that, uh, he was uh, going in that house, and he thought it was haunted. <laughs> I haven't heard this one. Yeah, I, I forget where he, he he. I think it was like one of the first couple of episodes. Uh-huh. He was talking about this house, and something kept on running through the house. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, "Oh, that would have been a." Because I was going to ask you what was what's uh-huh. one of your cops uh, like? Nope, not today, and just walk off the scene moments oh okay uh i can't okay i i'll have to I'm, I'm going through all my files in my brain i will tell you one with a different officer which blew my mind basically we had a guy that was missing this was years ago so this guy is reported missing and then someone finds him in the woods and and it appeared just from the crime scene that he had killed himself right okay. um unfortunately if if i remember right and some of the details are fuzzy like i said this was back when i was a patrol officer I think that some teenagers came along and took the firearm that he used to commit suicide. So it was like, it was like he had killed himself off of a trail that people would walk through in the neighborhood. Okay. So if you get the right mix and you have like gang members walking that cut to go to the store or whatever, and they see, I mean, like not all gang members are complete violent robots, but you got some gang members that like, they're not scared of dead bodies or whatever. Like, Hey, there's a free gun. But I think there was something like that, like there was a missing firearm. Either way, we had to guard this crime scene for uh, a day or two, which means you're guarding it at night. And this is mm-hmm. in the summertime, and this body had been out there for a few days, and it was, you know, decomp was already starting to happen. So you, you had a very Loading strong and all that stuff. Yeah, and so you're, you're down like deep in the woods. Now, it's a full moon out, and I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying this because I have a rookie, and I was a training officer at the time. And I'm like, okay, this is how we set up the crime scene, whatever, you know, we, we're, we're you know, I'm walking them through everything, but there's a full moon and we're in the woods. And so I love a full moon. I love just sitting out and, and just watch a moon or whatever. So I'm just kind of sitting out. I'm like, dude, we're going to be here for about six hours. So just relax, enjoy it. You don't have to worry about answering calls. All we got to do is make sure that no one comes through this crime scene, but we're in the woods. Like you're going to, you're going to hear people coming. So don't sweat it. Well, our relief, um, shows up right so it's so it's these two other officers 
Well, we had, we had shr- we shrank down the crime scene to where really all you needed was one officer to stand there directly with the body. It's like everything else has been taken care of. Just you just got to guard the body. One one officer. That's all we need. And at the time, we're we're in a district where shootings are happening, stabbings. Like it's wide open. So that's why I like enjoy just sitting there looking at the moon. With this officer that relieves us, the two officers show up, and I'm like, yeah, we don't need two. We only need one. We're shrinking everything down. And this officer looks dead, like dead in my eyes, grown man to grown man, and and is like, because he was the one that we picked. You're going to stay. <laughs> Everybody else is going to leave. And he's like, uh, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. I was like, whoa, like, no, you're you're going to stay. That's your job. You you guard the body. We're clear. He's like, uh, uh-uh, uh, I'm not, I'm not staying down here. You guys are going to come back down here and scare me. Like, um, <laughs> no, I'm not going to come back and scare you because <laughs> we're grown men. You're going to guard that body. He would not stay down there with that dead, with that uh, decedent, the, the dead body in the woods at night. I thought he was joking. He was being completely. Oh, no. Serious. Yeah. Yeah. And I, the other officer who's like one of the nicest guys I know, he's like, man, I'll stay with him. I'll stay with him. And I couldn't believe it. I was like, in my mind, I'm like, I left it alone. Like, okay, whatever. We're getting out of here. I took the rookie and gone. But in my mind, I'm thinking, one, this is a grown man. Two, this the sad thing is this guy is dead. He's not coming back to life. There's no threat. You're in the woods, man. Like, just relax. We're gonna go answer like 10 more calls before sun up, and there's gonna be cra- you know, chaos going on. Those threats are out there. This is what are we talking about here? Like, you know, return to living daylight. What are you what are you scared of, man? That blew my mind. So I, I'm, I'm thinking of a time when I would have been like, nope, I'm gone or whatever. I don't know, man. I don't know that I've, I know I've never been in a haunted house, but I think that would be interesting. Okay. The reason why it came up with one, it's October, it's, you know, Halloween time frame and everything. Yeah. But I, I recently saw this one video of this cop and uh, he's doing a uh, disturbance uh, call. Goes in the house, guys talking to him. Guys like really energetic. Yeah. The problem with it is the guy that he's interviewing and talking to, he has like a ton of snakes in the house as pets. Okay. And the guy's (laughs) just like freaking him out. He's like, hey, hey, yeah, I got the and 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 you know. Even as adults, we're like little kids. Once, once we find someone that 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 we want to show our like toys to, we, <laughs> yeah. we go out and like, hey, I just got this axe from Black Rifle Coffee. Look at it. Look at yeah. it. You like it? Touch right. it. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. well, I don't know why, but guys do this all the time. We're uh-huh. we're just like little kids. But this guy's just doing is like. Showing around and everything is like, hey, you want to see my snakes? No, I don't uh, want to see your snakes. So he has to go in, and he's and he has his one room. And he's like, oh, you don't want to go in there if you're actually afraid. But I, I got your back, Bo. I got your back. <laughs> I'm talking, he's like in the video. I'm looking at this. This guy is probably about six three, six two, uh-huh. and a gun, right? And he just flips out and runs out the door. I can believe that because I'm going to tell you this, me and Mr. No shoulders. We don't get along, dude. I don't dig snakes. I don't want to be around snakes. I don't want to be in a house with snakes and I don't don't want that. Yeah. I don't want some person to want to show me. I know somebody who recently told me a story 
about picking up a dead snake and chasing a friend of theirs with that snake down the street as an adult. And I was like, I would be, I'd be pissed. I, I got, I got two stories. One was when I was a little kid and we had a, we, we, this is the time frame where they had like stores in the malls. Yeah. And they had a pet store and I just turned this corner and I just see this. They had the snake out showing everybody <laughs> the snake. Uh-huh. And it, from what my dad says, he said, I'm, I've never seen anything run that fast. <laughs> right. And I yeah. ran all the way to our car. I just ran. I didn't yeah. stop. I, I was Forrest <laughs> Gump at the time. <laughs> right, right, right. And I was running. Right. Yeah. So, so second, you break up. Uh-huh, go ahead. The second time, uh, I'm working at the job that I'm working at right now. One of the uh, one of the guys, he's country bunking. So he grabs mm-hmm. one of these snakes. It, it, from what I looked like, it was probably just a garden snake. This is like really bitty. But yeah. I told him, I was like, take it out that side that, that way. No, I'm going to go this way. It's like, no, you're not. You're going to take it out <laughs> right. that way. It right. took one of the other employees that was went out to the range with me when I freaked out, when I kept on hearing like crickets. He's like, yeah. dude, that's a cricket. Are you sure? <laughs> right. Are you, right. Yeah. Are you sure? We're yeah. making sure right now. I, I, I was like, I was like, yeah. it's coming in this direction. Y'all might want to move on the other side. Yeah, yeah. But and it took that guy going. Uh, Dave doesn't like snakes, and he will kill yeah. you. Right. Yeah. We, we've already verified that. Yeah. Because I was with him when he thought he heard a snake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, don't mess with Dave and snakes. Yeah. So so phobias are obviously real. And I don't necessarily have a phobia of snakes. I just don't dig them. Like I don't need yeah. to be around them. Right? Well, I, have this, I, I also have this one theory is if, if you think about it and you look at it, a person that's scared, cause I don't, I don't care about spiders. I like spiders, but right. I hate snakes, mm-hmm. but a person that hates spiders can still deal with snakes. Yeah. It, that you're right. That it, cause I'm the same way. Spiders don't bother me. Yeah. Um, and clowns don't bother me, but I have met people that are terrified of clowns. And so it is strange because, you know, you like, uh, so when, when you're talking about like phobias, we have a psychologist, like a department psychologist, mm-hmm. that's her job is to just take care of us, our whole department, like 24 yeah. seven, we have access to her. It's free. And she has a very, um, distinguished background. Like she's, she is squared away and she also works with officers on their phobias. So you got to think about like, what if you're an officer and you work in a big city and you have a phobia of elevators. Most people don't okay. think about that because you're like, well, an elevator is an elevator. But if somebody has a phobia of an elevator, and at some point they have to get on an elevator for whatever reason, or they have to now avoid an elevator, it, that could be problematic. Or if I really had a phobia, a true phobia of snakes, where I would freeze or do whatever, I'm going to run across a snake on the job. You know what I mean? So like, it's like you got to overcome that phobia. And so she would do that. She would She would slowly you know, um, uh, introduce people to their phobia. So she's actually worked with officers on elevators. I didn't know this, but like people, I guess some people with, uh, elevator phobia, even seeing the elevator, like they got to walk past the elevator to get to the steps and go 20 floors up maybe, or 30 floors up, mm-hmm. even walking past that elevator caused them anxiety. You know, yeah. so the whole idea is like you, you always want to be switched on. You don't want to be worried about. Well, I was afraid of needles for the longest time. And, uh, I was like, I got to get over this. So I started getting tattoos. <laughs> there you go. Hey, it's better than shooting heroin. Right. 
That didn't I work. mean, if you want to get over needles, you know what I'm saying? Like, Dude, I don't understand that. I was like, I would hate, I, w- I, w- I had this fear that I would be like a diabetic because oh, you, have sh- you have to like shoot yourself every day. I mean, yeah. you know, you say heroin, you know, that numbs you and that's, you know, you get that, yeah. uh, that euphoria and everything, but the yeah. being a diabetic, you don't get that. So, yeah. So when I was in basic training, I didn't, I didn't understand what was going on. I was 17 years old when I left home. Right. So mm-hmm. I, I get to Fort Benning and I don't know what's going on. They're just telling you, go here, go here, do this. And they take us into a room and it's just a, a square room and these like little stations set up almost like little cubicles and the floor and the, and the whole floor is padded, like, like almost like wrestling match or like a gym class match, you know, these like soft spongy mats. I'm like, why is the floor like spongy? It didn't make sense. And you have to line up with your foot touching this like 1970s style plastic baseboard or whatever. And you march, you know, and step, step, step and all that. Well, then all of a sudden you realize you're going to these stations and they're pulling out these air guns, not needles, but like the the medicine, like the you're getting these vaccines or whatever. Yeah. These and they're just shooting them into your arm. Boom, 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 boom. You know, well, (laughs) obviously the army has done this before dudes like about one every 10 person is is falling out because they have phobias of needles and later on we find out these guys that are passing out thought these air guns were shooting these large needles <laughs> into the arm like you know like a piston like well, wham you know you're getting hit with these big needles so That's sadly cool. they're they're scared to death of a needle we didn't, and then have, they're here. We didn't have padding oh well no. if we didn't have padding they'd have cracked their skulls because it was like just like somebody's yelling timber, man. They're just falling. Oh, boom, man. Boom, boom, boom. And uh, sadly, I thought it was kind of funny because some of the like loud mouths, like the guys who early on were, yeah, the oh, I'm going to be the biggest, baddest dude, you know, and then they're, they're like passing out because they're, because the air gun or whatever. But, but that had, whole idea. I had a dude that was like, well, like that, but it was with blood. As soon as he saw blood, he'd pass out. And he was really he was huge. Yeah. yeah. He, His he, own blood or just anybody's blood? anybody's blood he would like okay yeah throw up and he would like throw wow. up and pass out yeah he yeah see that's it. that yeah that's another thing like um uh, it's it's crazy to me that like people will apply for a police department get hired on like our department and not understand that you're going to go see horrible horrible things you're going to see bodies that are decapitated you're going to see bodies that are liquefied you know, you're going to see these horrible things and you'll see like rookies get on a crime scene and lose their their bearing their composure and it's like well, did you not mentally prepare yourself that you're going to see these like how well, are you going to go it's it's one of those things what i think it is uh is two things one they believe they're not going to have that bad of a time and they they can handle it until they actually get there uh-huh because it, it's a totally different story when you actually get there. Yeah. I didn't have a problem with it because, uh, you know, uh, I ended up hunting. I ended, I've i been in the guts. Yeah, I got you. Yeah. And we had this one guy, the the other officer was down doing her rounds, and the guy flipped out and uh, cut himself. He was cutting himself. He was a cutter. Yeah. He was a known cutter. Uh-huh. He was cutting himself. Until I got everything situated and everything, and I had the other inmate go in and bleach the whole uh, cell, I looked up at the wall. I was like, oh, that f- – mm. 
uh-huh. he he had etched in blood his boyfriend's initials on the wall in blood. Wow. Yeah. And I was like, and <clears throat> I saw that, yeah. and and the other inmate was like, "Is that?" I was like, "Yeah, that they just get it cleaned up." Yeah. yeah. But it was at that moment, and and the other officer is like, "You're so calm," and and I was like, "It's blood." Yeah. It's yeah. Yeah, you start to get yeah, you know, being like diseased. Yeah, you start to almost get uh, obviously desensitized, but you compartmentalize things too. So, like, that's the thing that it's almost like you get on the scene and you you kind of switch your brain and go, okay, you're not. And and this is where dark humor comes in, and where um, people on the outside the nuke on Armageddon. What's that now? Like the dude humping a nuke on Armageddon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's like this idea that so like the like I've I've heard people say like well it's insensitive when officers or detectives are making jokes. It's like I know it is. I know it's insensitive because our brains our brains are not wired to be like oh this is great. I love absorbing all this trauma and seeing bodies and and violence and all that. So the brain almost like is trying to counter it and bring in something like try to bring in something uh, uh, and humor is like a defense mechanism. So like Tanzia said, you know, recently, like, you know, he, he would often laugh at things when they're, they're more serious, you know, because your, your brain is doing that. Everybody kind of has their way of dealing with it because if you can't deal with it, you end up going and finding another job because it's tough. It's horrible. You yeah. know? So, th- so for me, at least I, um, I didn't always like do the, do the dark humor thing, but my brain could, could switch and go, okay, we're going to look at this as a crime scene. We're going to look at every little detail and I'm not right now. My brain is not going to focus on this person has family members and I have to deal with the family members and I have to, to absorb the, the sorrow and, and sadness and, 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 and the horrible things that they're going to have to go through. Like you, you kind of compartmentalize that off and then you go, okay, I'm looking at the the body. I'm looking at how it's arranged. I'm looking at the crime scene, who has a- access to the crime scene, victimology, all that. And then once you're done with that, then you switch gears. And then now you have to deal with family members. And that's where a lot of the emotions that people really don't understand. That's what can wear you down because you're taking it all in. You're sitting there. With I, the always thought, I always thought it was a, cause I always thought it wasn't the the person that was doing the crime scene, the detecting. Uh, I mean, you get a little bit of information from the family, but but the beforehand, before the detective uh, shows up, and like, hey, did you have any enemies type type deal? Yeah, it was like someone that was not part of the crime scene that had to go over there. It, it depends. Every department. Yeah, yeah. Every department is different. So I'm fortunate that on my department, um, <clears throat> we do a team approach. So you, you you have a couple of units that are working homicides, and you have a group of detectives and a sergeant, and they and they work independently. They work you know one case at a time, and so one person may be working the crime scene, one person may be working interviews, one person may be working all the databases, victimology, uh, social media, open sources, all that. 
everyone's kind of got different tasks. One person's pulling video from all these uh, businesses or whatever. And then you come, come, come back together collectively in order to share information and, and, and really share a brain about the whole case. So that then if someone has to switch gears and go, okay, I've watched all this video. Here's your killer. He's walking across the parking lot, whatever. He's got a limp and uh, it looks like whatever, you know, that he's got these, these characteristics we're going to focus on. Then someone can shift gears and have all that information. They may have to actually do the interview of the suspect or someone, you know, so it's a very organized team approach with team oriented detectives. So, but you're all going to see the crime scene. Everybody's going to walk the crime scene. Everybody's going to see it because you have to know every facet of that case, even though you're not lead, the lead detective. The lead detective for our units actually is the person who's organizing the case, who is going to um, be point of contact for the family um, and really kind of call the shots for their investigation and everybody else runs support, right? Okay. Now, now <clears throat> which when people start looking at it, that's usually not how like the TV shows portray it because you're really just going to focus on one main character. Who's this all knowing kind of Sherlock Holmes type of person. And they usually oh, yeah, like yeah. Uh, castle. They have uh, a writer come in and uh, help be in the that. Right. Right. It right, always right, happens. Right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 You, yeah, you yeah, have yeah, like yeah. five of them on your unit. Right. <laughs> right. Right. So it's like this idea that if you pick the right people, just like a basketball team, if you, if you can pick a collective of, players that are strong in different suits and then you put them all together man it's it is absolutely amazing so we're very fortunate that we have a very high clearance rate and that when newer detectives come onto the unit they have this this wealth of knowledge and because it's so team oriented people share that information willingly they just say hey okay you've never done a search warrant like this or oh you've never thought about this approach or whatever it's always really problem solving but at the end of the day, everyone's got to see the crime scene. Everybody's got to absorb that. The lead usually is the point of contact for that family. So everyone ha- is going to be lead at some point. We, we run through so many murders. You have to deal with the families, you know, and or you may get on the scene and have to interview people who witnessed it or their family members were there. You know, I had to unfortunately one time uh, talk to a uncle who was fishing with these two small kids. And because English was his second language, he didn't understand this sign that basically said, do not get in the water. The water has like a, a pool. It's almost like a, um, a reservoir sort of. So you could get sucked under the water. The surface looks flat and, and calm. Underneath are these currents that are flowing because there's like a waterfall down at the end of this reservoir. It's a very weird body of water. But they had these signs up all along the water. Sadly, he was fishing and was letting the kids kind of play around him. And then they got down into the water, and all of a sudden, it started pulling them under. And he's trying to hold on to them and fight, and then he's getting pulled under. And they, they both the kids drowned. And so I had to sit and talk to him and, and have him relive his niece and nephew drowned in his hands. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, a- a- absolutely horrible. Um, you have to get that information. You have to get it, you know, as, as soon as possible, right then on the scene, because if not, then because it's a death investigation, you're just trying to be able to explain what happened, you know, but things like that, that it, 
it, it's just a weird combination where they, they stay in your head and those emotions and those feelings. I've never met this man before. And then here I am sitting with him for hours and we're, and we're having to talk through this stuff and he's hugging me and he's squeezing my hand and my arm and he's crying and he's going through the worst day of his life. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, no, I, I totally get it. Absolutely. It's absolutely horrible. So it's one of those things that people don't always think about that. And there's a very, uh, yeah, they, don't like, only, they yeah. only like put in like a little bit of that in the TV shows and everything, but in all reality, yeah. that stuff is like hours and hours. Oh yeah. Hours. yeah. And, and that is why I'm always a proponent of, of trying to live a healthy life outside of that. Like, uh, if you can not drink, um, because it's a depressant and, and these things come back, these visions come back, the emotions come back. And if you, if you start to drink too much, you, you can go down that, that dark hole that yeah. like, and it's, it's bad, bad, bad. So it's, it's one of those things too, though, that we have a very healthy atmosphere. And like I said, we have a, a department psychologist. So, I mean, and, and, and I have called her before and been like, Hey, I got to talk. I got to do this or whatever. She'll meet you places. You can go, you can just walk and talk with her and just, you just kind of like free, free thought. Like, Hey, I just got to get this out because I, ha- I, if I talk about it, it's like, it's like, like a, like a pressure release. Like, okay, now it's out. You know, it, it, it is, it is a different type of environment. And, and that's for patrol officers. That's for anybody in law enforcement that gets on the scene, EMS, fire, anybody, you, you whoever you're working in corrections, you're going to see people getting cut, stabbed. You're seeing humanity at its worst. Yeah. And somehow you have to counter that and say at the root of everything, people are good because there are, you know, whatever, a million people in the city and not everybody is killing one another. Not everybody is assaulting one another. We're just being exposed daily to the most severe violence. And we have to remember this is a small sliver of society that at at the root of it, human beings are good and we live in peace and we actually, we, we are kind of hardwired to be that way, to be a community like organism. You know what I mean? Like to, we're geared to try to live in peace. Yeah. It's, it's like what, uh, anytime, like after the whole nine 11 thing, I mean, I had to go overseas and everything and I had to go and be in that kind of an environment where there was the people that destroyed our system. Yeah. And I come back home and I have like people saying, you know, derogatory statements is like, Oh, we should kill all of them. Blah, blah, blah. I was like, right. Yeah. Dude, there's still good people yeah. over there. I met. Oh them. yeah. It, you do not understand that the people that did that, are the assholes, but there's other right. people out there that they go about the daily lives and yeah. they, they don't want that. They are, they are also victims of that. This, yeah, exactly. Same way gangs are. Because it's, yeah, the it's, same, it's, yeah. it's, it's a victim of circumstance. Yeah. It's the same thing with like gangs. So that's why I explained to people you could, you can pull on a map and go, where are the most violent areas of the city historically? Like, do you have cycles of violence that stay in these areas of the city? And you can pull it. And you heard me mention earlier, like hives, H-I-V-E, like, like a beehive. Yeah. What you are looking for, you go into a neighborhood and 99% of the neighborhood either works or if they don't work, maybe they're on disability, they're on Section 8 housing, but they're living in peace. They're not, 
they're not selling drugs. They're not committing violence. They're trying to raise their kids the best they can. However, when they look out their window, there's, you know, 10 guys hanging out in the parking lot, sitting on a power box, smoking weed, you know, slap boxing and hanging out. And then all of a sudden the sun goes down and they're pulling guns out, popping shots. And they think it's funny. And then they got beef with someone or problems with someone they ride by and shoot at them. And, and then when you, when you're focusing on that and you go, okay, the problem is not the neighborhood, but the neighborhood gets labeled as it. Yes. So officers oftentimes will go, oh, that neighborhood's bad, or that's where all, you know, whatever you fill in the, the, the term or whatever, like, you know, they, they, that's where all the criminals live or like, man, I just wish they would level that apartment complex or whatever. That's the trash so area or, yeah, or yeah. So like I was always the, the railroad tracks. Yeah. So I was always like trying to, to battle that and, and try to explain to other officers too. Like, no, there's, there's like, use a one or two strongholds. That's it. If we can find the hive, if it's, if it's this apartment or this trailer or this house, we focus on that. Yeah. And if it's a rental, the, uh, uh, what, what, what do you call it? The, the, the wasp nest. Yes. I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like, so if you have a, a beehive, at your house or your, your dwelling, your apartment, whatever, you don't move because of the beehive. You get rid of the beehive. Now you don't have yeah. bees, right? That's it. Yeah. So, so you do it through, it's not always through arrest. Sometimes it is through, okay, here's the hive. We've identified it. It's a rental home. Who rents it? Oh, okay. Who's the actual owner of the home? Step to the owner. Talk to them. Hey, did you know that your house has 15 911 calls in the last 30 days? Did you know? Cause a lot of times people don't know they own the house, but they rent it to somebody and they don't, they don't check in on them. Right. Then the, then the homeowner, the actual homeowner who's renting it will then realize, Oh, Oh, I've got a problem. Yeah, you do have a problem. And then you work the angles of, of the neighborhood. So you get on the phone, you call neighbor, you know, the neighbors and stuff. And you say, Hey, you're never going to meet me. We're never going to meet face to face. Don't tell anybody you're even talking to me, but tell me about this house, this, this location. And so now you have citizens who are like, okay, I've lived here for 20 years. We've never had any problems. And now in the last six months, we've had shootings, stabbings um, right there at this house. Okay. Tell me when's the most time, when it's the most active Friday nights, 6 PM to one o'clock wide open. Like that's the reason their front yard is dirt instead of grass. Cause everybody stands in the yard, cars pull up, they approach the cars, the cars drive off, you know, that the house got shot up the other day. I heard them talking at the bus stop and they said it was whatever eight Trey Cripps dudes that did it. I don't know what that means, officer or detective, but run with it. You know, you take all these bits of information from the neighborhood or from whoever has access to that location. And then you start to just chisel away. And then you go, okay, if Friday from 6 PM to 1 AM is, is the best window of observable behavior, let's get a team in there, plainclothes officers or whatever the angle is, you go and do the surveillance and you go, okay, it's a neighborhood. There's a wooded area along the side of the house. You get in a ghillie suit, right? And you crawl your, your butt up there, get in a hide spot, and you start calling in the activity. The rest of us will set up on the perimeter, and we'll start doing stops. So if you're observing people and you go, man, that guy right there in the group sitting at the power box keeps touching his waistband. He keeps his heads on a swivel, you know. So the surveillance guy is calling it out and is saying, hey, this is what we've got going on. This guy's doing this. Then we may say, okay, hey, send in a patrol vehicle, like a marked unit. So now we have a police presence in the area, and let's see how they react. So then you send in a, a patrol unit, comes creeping down the street, 
and everybody's yelling, whatever, you know, like they always have like codes, like one time or whatever, you know, man down, whatever. And when they call it, then everybody starts looking around. They see the patrol vehicle. Then the person with the weapon indicates from their body language where that weapon is. Because now they realize I have a gun on me. This is the equivalent of if that cop stops me, I'm going to prison. So instinctively, they're going to touch it. They're going to blade their body. They're going to move around. They're going to wiggle. They may just take off running. Boom. They may pull it out immediately, throw it behind the power box and act like everything's cool. And so your surveillance guy's watching it the whole time or surveillance person's watching it the whole time. But you have created uh, uh, something different in their environment by by introducing that patrol vehicle, that uh, uniform police presence. Now the patrol vehicle just keeps rolling on and surveillance is like, that's our guy. He's got a gun on him. These are all the indicators. Let's go ahead and roll in, get him stopped. And then your team rolls in, jumps out, boom, prone him out, get the gun out of his waistband. Boom, you're gone, buddy, you know? And you just pick people off until the hive, the family at that location realizes you, you've got a problem and we're going to arrest everybody. Every night we're going to be here. Or two, you need to stop doing what you're doing because you are bringing violence into a neighborhood of people who do not want the violence here. It, and it's as, it's as simple and as easy as that. And that's one of those things that as, as we're working our units and working these assignments, all that stuff starts to break down. And, and that's all it is. You just look at it and you attack the one problem and you get as much intel as possible. And then you say, okay, how, how are we going to break the back of this location? Yeah, it was like, uh, and I hate to say it, and this is where I got it from. Uh, it was an issue of uh, New Avengers where they were, and I eventually researched to find it out. Uh, <clears throat> what they ended up doing is they ended up picking a spot that was in a bad neighborhood and uh, I forgot what they called it. Uh, showing a force, basically. Okay, yeah. And they were just in the neighborhood. <clears throat> Didn't do anything. Just talking to people and everything. Mm-hmm. And f- uh, from that, I found out they did it in uh, an area in Chicago. They would go from one, one block. They would just show a force, talk with people and everything. And the cops would stay in there. And then they would just move on to the next neighborhood. And it, and it yeah. did help with the crime rate for uh, a small amount. Yeah. Uh, and it's <clears throat> it's just the, with the, the knowledge that those cops are going to be there. Yes. It, well, okay, think about it. You have to put yourself in the position of the citizen. If I'm a 60-year-old grandmother and I'm looking out my window and I see it every day, and I don't see cops addressing it, then what happens is people give up and they say, well, I can call 911 and I've done it in the past, but when they come out here, they don't arrest them. Well, they can't arrest them because they don't have any probable cause. Hell, they probably don't even have reasonable suspicion to stop them because they're a patrol officer responding to an area that is very vague information like, hey, there there are guys hanging out on a power box or there are guys loitering you know, in the parking lot. Well, by the time they roll up, they may have walked off or the guys just may be like, yeah, our friend, whatever her, you know, her name is, she lives at that apartment and, and she's right here and her brother's right here. It's like, oh, well, you live here. Cool. And they move on. But the image to the citizens are, well, the cops don't care yeah, because the citizen is looking at it going, how do you not know this is crime? That's your job is to know where the crime is. So that's what, like that. That was always the running theme when I was on patrol was like, this is our, this is my beat. This is my area of operation. I work in every day. I need to know the store managers, 
I need to know store clerks. I need to know everybody. I need to know who my frequent flyers are. I need to know my homeless population because I have a very small plot of land and I've got shootings and stabbings and murders happening and I'm a patrol officer. And it's, and it's not that I'm allowing it to happen, but what am I doing to disrupt it? And so that was the era I came up in was you develop sources as a patrol officer. You develop actual informants. You fill out a packet. Hey, this person works for me. They're going to go whatever, buy drugs. They're going to go get a lead on a gun. They're going to go in this neighborhood and find a fugitive you're looking for. You know what I mean? Like they're going to yeah. go in, go into a shot house and be like, yeah, this dude sells, you know, solo cups of beer and, and liquor and alcohol, or whatever. But yeah, you're looking for this dude. Cool. I, I was just in there and your guy, your shooting suspect is in there. His car's parked in the driveway. It's his grandmother's car. Here's the tag. His name's okay. Bob. You know, right, yeah. Get his social security <laughs> <Exactly>. number two. <laughs> right. But you're just like, cool. And then you meet up with the informant, paying for their time and their information. And that was the era I came up in in police work. Sadly, right now we're not in that era. The patrol officers are in a very reactive um, mindset. They go and they answer the calls and then they go back to a, a safe area where they're just kind of hanging out. And I get it. I understand why that's going on. But that's also why your violent crime in all of your major cities is skyrocketing and in the suburbs because that proactive, that ability to disrupt is, is not going on uh, on a grand scale. And, and really, it really is not that hard to disrupt violence when you're dealing with gang members and drug dealers. It's, we, we've got a lot of violence going on in families right now, and just it's a crazy time. But that we stuff you can do. We ended up having a little bit of problem here in our city only because of, I, I don't know if it's fixed or not, but I know like uh, a year ago, they let out like a bunch of, because we have a uh, state hospital. Okay, yeah. So we had a lot of uh, crazy people. They went from 3,000 to 300. Yes. Oof. And we, the cops can't do anything. I mean, they, they, they can, if they're harming themselves or they're harming another people, they can, but if they're just being a disruption or yeah. going a little bit, a little bit too high velocity, yeah. even my dad, they have, we have a new jail, uh, here for the sheriff's department. And one of the guys that was, uh, one of the crazies that got let out they're waiting for like 15 months to send them back to the state hospital. Yeah. And they, this new jail cell, he just totally demolished, mm. ripped up the concrete, busted up. And now he, he went from a deputy to maintenance mm. and he has to fix all this stuff now. And he's like, mm. man, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. We can't do anything with the guy. Yeah. And it is just to the point where, you don't know what's happening in the environment. I started caring a lot more. Yeah. I, so I don't, I don't want to, you know, take somebody down with a gun. No. But I have to protect me and yeah. people are around me. So the, the, the great thing about this is, all right. So we, we, in, in police work in general, we've done a great job in 20 years. Uh, and you can look at the stats of, curbing violence and driving down violent crime for many, many years. What we did a horrible job of was telling the public what we were doing and how we were doing that. 
Oh, so, yeah. do you know what I mean? Like, we really didn't. Like, no, 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 no. You're totally, totally right. Yeah. So, like, I, I was told and trained, you don't talk to the media, obviously. Yeah. You know, our job is to try to prevent violent crimes from happening, work our areas, work our beats, and and actually be, like, really good at our jobs, right? That was that was the way I was trained. So, but but now you see the the ramifications of us staying in the shadows for so long and and the violence decreasing then people think oh well, everything is is perfect like people aren't violent and and really the problem we have are like these aggressive cops and they're just doing these horrible things yeah you're only the, seeing one side of the story <laughs> right and so when you talk about you start to have the breakdown in in the mental health services. And like I said earlier, like I, I have a degree in psychology. Like, yeah, it's very near and dear to my heart. Like I have family members that are dealing with different uh, mental illnesses. Uh, I have a, uh, I had an uncle who's deceased now, but he, he spent 20 something years on the street battling addiction and was one of the most arrested persons in my city that where, where I work. So it's pretty, pretty personal to me. And, and, we see the same thing and we've seen it for years where our facilities were getting shut down and now people don't have those services and they don't get their meds and then they start to cycle. And then you see the violence come where if they did have their meds or they did have oh, services yeah. that the, the violence wouldn't happen. Now what, what we did to counter that, and I say, we, I didn't have anything to do with the, the designing the system, but law enforcement across the board in the area I work in uh, or the region I work in, teamed up with mental health clinicians and the clinicians designed training specifically for us on patrol. And I went through one of the first classes, I don't know, 15 years ago on how to diffuse, how to identify very specific behaviors, psychosis. And the problem is this, you know, you're a cop and all you know is to solve the problem is to arrest somebody. Yeah. So if somebody is having a psychosis or they're having uh, an episode or they're just like going through a bout of depression and they're, and they're in a park at three o'clock or in the they, morning. they just need their, their new, uh, their meds and everything. I actually had, right. right. I had, I had that situation happen. If it wasn't for the fact that I've, I worked corrections. Yeah. This guy would have probably been, you know, arrested. And mm-hmm. it, it was one of those stories is he thought the cops were like tracking them down and, yes. you know, yeah. and I talked to him and I had, you know, I got, uh, I, I was like, Hey, give me your therapist number. Or do you, it was like, Oh, well, my batteries. I was like, do you have enough to where I can get, get the therapist number called yeah. therapist, got him set up and everything like that. Uh, did the non-emergency cop call, call the cop. Mm-hmm. I was like, Hey, I just, I don't, I don't want, want you to be freaked out or anything like that. But one of these, uh, one of my buddies, he's a cop. Yes. Don't, don't, don't run or anything. But he's gonna he's going to make sure you get to the hot, uh, the therapist and you get yeah. your meds, okay? And yeah. he, and, and me and the cop, I was like, hey, hey, buddy, and I literally, I was like, hey, buddy, how's it going? You remember me? We uh, we did that thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we had this, you know, thing yeah. going. It was like, hey, this is so and so. He he's he's a little bit needing uh, needing his medicine, and everything like that from his therapist. Can you make sure he gets there? I can't do it. I gotta gotta I gotta go to this thing, but can you do it? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, now, yeah. And, and so we're all friends now. Boom. Yes. Yeah, that's what I mean. <clears throat> so that idea of 
us in law enforcement switching gears and going, okay, I'm, I don't need to arrest my way out of this problem for this poor guy. I need to figure out what we've got. What resources? Do some ver- we uh, what I call a verbal jujitsu. Right, right. So it was like it was that idea of when we went through the training, we had clinicians training us. We're running these scenarios, and we're also touring the facilities, so that if we are talking to someone like that, and and at that time when I was on patrol, we had a lot of people that were rotating back from overseas and getting out of the military, and we're trying to adjust. And so it's two different times I had to talk guys out of potentially killing themselves or their family members or whatever. And each time it was like, because I knew the background of the facilities, I knew what the steps were going to be. I could explain to them, look, this is the deal, man. I could a very calm voice. Like these are our options. This is what we can do. And we're, we're going to go to this facility. You know, it's all voluntary. If you, when, whenever you're ready to tap out, you tell me, I'll bring you back home. But I got a feeling that if you'll just listen to me and trust me, let's go talk to these people and I'll be sitting right there. And then if, like I said, if at any time you want to tap out, I'll give you a ride right back home. It's much different than, oh, well, what, what, what probable cause do we have? Oh, he's got a knife. And the family member heard him say something to the effect of he was going to end everybody. Oh, well, then that's communication of threats. Let's take him to jail. Now you've created a problem because you got a guy who's never been to jail who served his country is coming back home and is dealing with a lot of problems that jailers is jail is not going to fix. No. So if you then charge him and take him to jail on that, now you've created a, a criminal history. You're locking him up in at least, even if it's temporary for a day or two, he's now going to feel shame. He's now going to feel rejection. He's going to have to come back to that same family environment and, and guess who his accusers are his own family members. Yeah. So we the whole thing know. with the uh, whole red flag stuff that I, 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 I cause a person was like, Hey, we, these red flag laws sound really good. I was like, you don't know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. One, you can have that family member that might've overheard a conversation mm-hmm. with the guy with the knife. He could just be uh cutting onions or something like that and he's talking on the phone but he or he's doing his dark humor thing and yeah it, it, but it, yeah it's just one of those things that you just can't understand yeah so you have to when you start getting into like red flags and you start getting into uh reports like where, where citizens are saying hey this person could be a potential active shooter or this person is whatever you should have a unit that actually investigates that yeah, and it, it's trained to do that. Yeah, 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 because there there's very specific training for that. That's really really impressive, and there are systems in place, uh, very similar to, like where you're doing a team, um, not investigation, but like an assessment. You got psychologists on board. You've got some local um, state agencies. You've got local. Um, but you're not just these people and taking them to jail. No, 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 no. And I think that's the thing too, that like you'll, you'll see on like social media and stuff and, ch- and chat rooms or whatever, like when people get on their comments and they're like, Oh my God, you know, you basically could just lock somebody up for no reason and all that. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen. I think, still like a process. I said, yeah. There's a process. And then too, if you go through the training or you're part of a unit like that, like an Intel unit or an assessment unit or whatever you want to call it, when you go through that and you actually do those, you realize like, okay, we are, we are bringing in different, different experts and different people 
and then say, okay, just like you said, what is it that was said? Who heard it? What's their background? Are they working? Can we go talk to their employer? Can we talk to their mother, their cousin? You're talking to all these different people and getting a picture of, is this person truly unstable? Are they going to be an active shooter? Is there a plan in place? Do they have access to firearms? Do they have access to explosives? You know, that sort of thing. Like if, if, okay, I'll give you a perfect example. A guy got frustrated and a tele, uh, tele whatever marketer kept calling the house or a bill collector or something. Mm-hmm. He got frustrated and mad. He was an older guy, like 60 years old or whatever. And flat out said, basically something to the effect of, well, I'll just go and shoot up a school. Completely asinine thing to say. Yeah. Whoever the person was that was talking to him on the phone, it was a recorded message. So you don't really have a whole lot of context. You just have him getting mad and saying this. So then as you start to dig in and you start to figure out who the guy is and all the background and stuff, make contact, like, hey, what what was going on that you had to say this? Because we didn't have any other indicators, no firearms, no history of violence, nothing like that. And the guy broke down and said, I was so mad and frustrated. I blurted that out like an idiot because I was mad about this person that kept calling my house, which still didn't make sense to me why he took it to that level. But that was an example, like when you do an assessment and then go, okay, there's really no articulable facts that say he's going to do this. He said something completely stupid, you know, but there's nothing that, that, that we can articulate or, or should articulate or not articulate, but that we should put in place to limit his freedoms. He just said something superbly stupid in a heightened era where on the news every day is an active shooter. Yeah. So you have to be careful too when you get into that environment where the news and social media has created this feeding frenzy, very much like the late 70s and early 80s with serial killers. So the more you see it on the news, the more it's in people's, you know, forethought or whatever. Active shooters are the same way. If somebody is having trouble with life and they're beginning to have these thoughts of committing violence onto just average citizens, it doesn't help when every day there's a new story of the body count doubles or, you know, this guy killed 73 people and the news are, they're getting all their views and clicks and likes and their advertising is paying the bills because they are getting all this, this traffic. And now you've got a guy sitting at home in his basement. Who's an extremist mindset. He's been rejected by groups, you know, so now he's the lone wolf and now he's starting to think these things. And now he's seeing constant media coverage and he wants that. And sadly, he wants to do it bigger and better than the last person. Yeah. Right. And so there's a lot more to all this stuff, but it's not as easy as just going, oh, I just called 911 and said my next door neighbor, whatever is, you know, going to shoot up a school. And then the police are going to show up and just lock it down, snatch his weapons lock him away in a, in a mental facility or whatever and, and move on and go eat donuts and, and watch Netflix. Like it, it just doesn't, it doesn't really happen that way yeah. in, in the real world. So. And most, and most people don't understand that they, and I've always said this on, on my podcast is that uh, you have that mob mentality. And I, I literally thought about it today is uh, the fact of, 
me and you can agree on something and then we convince somebody else to agree with our stuff and that person isn't someone that should be agreeing on our stuff and goes a little bit overboard like uh-huh. uh, a person that uh i okay i show you a new show you uh me as a person i like the show i like watching it i thought it was a good show you on the other hand you like the show but you like the like the show you don't have that much interest and you start like blogging about how the contents of this episode doesn't match up with this episode and it happens on the nerd stuff all the freaking time okay yeah <clears throat> and, and and you go out of your way to protest reason why this this starship shouldn't be in this episode because it would be better with this starship and i'm just going i just enjoy that show <laughs> right right yeah that's yeah. it yeah so you're not the extremist you're not the true no. believer you're not no. The, yeah no and that's what yeah it is it's like that whole uh little mermaid thing uh everybody was like oh sh- I, we can't believe sh- the little mermaid's african-american but everybody's missing the point because hellraiser just came out the new one okay and pinhead's a woman everybody's fine yeah. with a woman yeah. as a person that's going to steal your soul and ruin your life, but a mermaid. Right. Yeah. And, and it's, it's to me, like, I don't watch the news. I stay, I actually actively will not watch the news yet. I still often hear like that. Like I heard people talking about little mermaid. M- my logic is I don't really care. I don't care as it doesn't if affect you, my if life, you, but I care. Right. If, well, if you revamp a story, if, you know, um, you take a, a, a character from the 70s and you revamp it and you make it whatever. It was I like don't care. It, it just did a quantum leap. Now, I, I can't really get into it, but uh-huh. I mean, I love the old quantum leap, but I was trying to get it. It's like watching the, you know, you liked it when you're a kid, but you don't really like it when you're adult type deal. Right. Yeah. But that's my thing is like a story is a story. Yeah. So if you if you retell a story, but you use a different character with a different whatever cultural background, different religious background, maybe a different new theme, maybe maybe you re you redo or reboot a show and the lead character is, you know, a gay male. And so what he's dealing with is homophobia, but he's also saving the world. Cool. Like because now a young kid or a teenager who can can um see that story or that that movie or whatever and go oh someone actually knows how i feel and i can relate to that character yeah that is wonderful like i like i think that that's the power of telling stories that's the power of comics movies shows is to relate to people and bring them into that universe or that story either for escapism you know or for hey i'm a, i can relate to that and i don't feel ostracized i don't feel like i'm an outsider now because mainstream is saying it's okay to be gay male whatever you know like that's okay because this person is saving the world or this person is a, the only is time the frame where i don't like it is for the fact it doesn't help the story one iota Mm-hmm. it's just there it was like oh we're doing this because of what they are i'm like yeah what i was like but that's what i mean so 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 i'm gonna interrupt like the best kingpin the best kingpin was michael uh 
uh oh god it was one with the uh uh ben affleck that that daredevil uh man i watched like five minutes and turned it off yeah really i had to turn it off michael clark duncan okay michael clark dunton still to this day i can't even the new daredevil the tv series they have out i can't Uh that that kingpin's not the kingpin i like the the one that michael clark duncan did yeah it as a badass yeah, because the kingpin is a badass. Like yeah. you got to play it that way. And yeah. and if you look at the the TV series, uh, the guy that did it in the TV series, it's like a spoiled little kid that doesn't know his own, uh, yeah. uh, where he's at at times. He just has like a little kid fit of rage, and I hate it. Yeah, that. and the, so that's much different than the actual character. So that's that's what I'm saying is like if kingpin t- to me, you, you could be whatever background to be the kingpin you just got to play the part similar to the kingpin and why he's so powerful and such a badass right but that's what i mean is like if if someone says hey i'm going to revamp this character and i'm going to tell this story but it's going to be this this kid who grew up in the south and he and he rode skateboards and he listened to punk rock and he ran from from dudes in camaros with mullets you know like I can relate to that because that's how I grew up. So if they revamp the story and and I'm watching it, now I'm relating to that and I'm going, damn, like mainstream finally gets it that, you know, we were skating, we were listening to punk, we were living in the South and and it was like all out, like you're you're going to get your head smashed because of who you are, solely because you ride a piece of wood with four wheels. Dudes are going to bail out of a truck and do their best to, to smash you. Yeah, and you're going to do your best to pick the skateboard up and crack them across the head with a metal truck holding these two wheels to this wooden board. That's now, what always got me to the point mm-hmm. where of how a lot of times they show like people hating on the people uh, like uh, like like skateboarders. Yeah, we didn't have a problem with skateboarders here in, in my town. Everybody mm-hmm. got got a uh, got together, and sometimes the the hillbilly rednecks were like uh-huh. oh man you do a really cool trick with that <laughs> yeah. Let yeah let me build you a freaking ramp that would right. yeah out. that would be cool but <laughs> a lot of the stories yeah. that come out during that time frame they were rebels and no one would help them out yeah yeah but that's the that's what i'm saying is like that was what now would probably sound cliche because you have had those stories come out when i was a kid that was the truth like you literally you could be out skating and you would either hear like a Camaro or you would see a truck and immediately get nervous and you're sizing them up. Like, okay, are they going to bail out on us? Who are these guys? And especially if you don't know them, that's the unknown. It's like, damn, I don't know who that person is. And that was the, that was the case. And so for me, it it started at a very young age, man. I was like 10 or 11 getting in fights with older guys purely because of the skateboard stuff. And it's so stereotypical. It's so, outsiders socials versus the greasers and so my dad who uh you know we, I, my brother and i were gonna visit my dad uh every other weekend he lived in a different city and and when the outsiders came out we saw that movie when we were very young and we related to it right well well yeah it was like a year or it was about maybe a year or two whatever right around that time that then all this stuff started happening to us and my dad had grown up in san diego california and had lived through a lot of that and was like, yes, 
this is how it was. You had greasers, you had socias, you had jocks, you know, like there were all these cliques of people and they did fight. Like that was what they did. And we're like, yeah, no shit. That's what we're going through too. And so the outsiders kind of made it made sense in my world. Like, yeah, I get it. Cause that's what we're living through as an adult. Now it's interesting because I see younger people, fortunately not having to deal with that. And they can go oh, skate yeah. in the South. Like, okay. So Tansy, Tansy's got, um, uh, a business like a, a, a distillery and he'll bring bands in to play at the distillery, like punk rock bands. Yeah. And I've, I've traveled out there and gone to one of the shows and this great band called orphan riot played and nicest dudes in the world. They're very young. They, they live in the South, but they play like really good punk rock and they don't. And, and in that environment, they're like really nice. Yes, sir. No, sir. And the crowd was nice. And so like Tansy was even kind of giving the, the crowd a hard time. Like, you know, like, like, like let, let out all that aggression, you know, like let's get a pit going and stuff. But, but a lot of these kids were like just really cool and laid back because some of them, not all of them, but some of them were not going through that. They were not getting beat up. They weren't getting victimized, which to me is like, okay, the South is evolving because, because people are evolving. People are learning. Don't be a bully. Like that's not cool. And you're probably going to get your head split with a skateboard. So Hell, it, it, nowadays, I mean, look at look at all the stuff that uh, I, I I I mean, all the stuff that I'm into, you know, role playing, D and D, you know, just anime stuff and everything like yeah. that. Now it, it, it's part of the norm. When I was a kid, I almost got beat up like every other day. <laughs> yeah, being yeah. that different kid. Well, that's why Stranger like, Things. Oh my God, you! Yeah. It's so cool. Yeah, when Stranger Things came out, like I was just having a conversation with a person the other day about that, about why like Stranger Things is so great because different generations can watch it and get something from it. Like younger generations love the retro thing, older generations or you know adults watch it. Like I remember the wood panel walls and the kids that played oh, Dungeons yeah. and Dragons. Oh, yeah. You know, like oh, the kids yeah. in the in the early eighties wearing like like you know everything was like olive green yeah but like dungeons and dragons man was like i never played but i knew guys that did and they were serious about it like that was like the end all be all they got into it they talked about the dice and the characters and so i knew one dude that that played it and actually would create from like styrofoam packages Mm -hmm. like you buy something and something comes in styrofoam he would take the styrofoam and build like castles yeah, And he had like these little figurines that he would paint and stuff. And I was fascinated by it, but I just wasn't like smart enough to get into the whole realm of it. I was like, okay, I'm going to go grab a, a stick and pretend like I'm going to go kill communist or Cobra and play GI Joe. Like that was what I actually, I had a role-playing game that you could play with. <laughs> oh, like GI Joe or something. Dude, or like, I, 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 yeah. I'm in so many uh, role-playing games, man, because it, it's just, you know, it helps my imagination, and I actually create yeah. actual gameplay. I mean, I I do Star Wars, Cyberpunk. Uh, okay. I mean, there's there's a lot. I mean, they they have World War uh, Two ones where you can like set. It, it's more or less like uh, chess tactics, and you got different types okay. of tools and everything like that. Like Risk a little bit, like the old game yes. Risk, but yes, really we, like on steroids we, we and jacked up. Dude, there's there's like four four or five versions of risk oh okay there's like space risk yeah (laughs) look i went to a party one time when i was a senior in high school 
somehow my brother's like, look, dude, we're going to, we're going to this college party. I'm like, okay. So I'm driving because I was a sober kid. I was in the straight edge and stuff. So I didn't drink, but yeah. everybody around me, we just get hammered knee walking drunk. And, and I, my goal was to get them back home safely. We end up at some party in a college and there are guys and girls everywhere. They're getting drunk, but there's like a core group of like six or eight or whatever dudes around this table playing risk. And this is not in the early eighties. Like I, I was, a, I was in like the nineties, but it was like a throwback to like the eighties. And these dudes are like, they could care about the keg beer and, and guys and girls like flirting and hooking up. Like they're all into this risk. And it blew my mind. Cause I'm sober. I'm sitting there and I love studying like people. I'm like, these dudes are playing risk. Like Dude, it's the end all be all game. We had huh? like, we had like a month, month and month or a half risk game. Yeah, like that's what I was told was like this shit goes on for a yeah. long time. And like it, it it comes down, it can come down to blows or whatever. Like I was just fascinated, like, how are you playing this game? It would be like me trying to play chess, you know, in the middle of this chaos. I could you know, and, and we're all talking, laughing, everybody's getting drunk, but I'm like just fascinated by like these college dudes are sitting here playing risk because I remembered risk when I was a little kid. Mm-hmm. Like my cousins and and the older kids would play it and i had no clue what was going on it didn't make any sense to me i, I still never played it but. dude uh the board games nowadays okay yeah. okay before we get on can we pause i don't know you tell me you're you're oh, in control okay. of everything oh well, we're gonna pause for a second i gotta use the restroom i gotta okay, take do i pause too uh, yeah go up to the uh, where it says recording and just hit pause recording there we go now uh what i was talking about was board games and, mm-hmm. and sorry we had a we had to take a little little restroom break <laughs> but uh board games uh go to uh, honestly go to your uh local gaming store and just pick up mm-hmm. one and it that man i i got like i said i got a lot of hobbies that, mm-hmm. that i do and playing board games you can don't get monopoly with a relation when when you're with the like someone and you're in a relationship uh-huh. That, that's one of the games that will break the relationship. <laughs> okay. Don't don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, board games now nowadays. I mean, they got race car ones. They got they got. So so I was that era of Clue, the old board game Clue, yeah. like Colonel Mustard with the candlestick yeah. and the Great conservatory. Movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. Big Tim Curry fan over here, man. Clue, <laughs> it, I actually, and uh, Rocky I Horror Picture. What's that? I actually met him, and it, nowadays he's not good. Oh man! Yeah, yeah. I, I was I was getting a I was gonna go get a photo with him at a mm-hmm. comic con. Okay. Yeah, 2015 he had a stroke. Oh man! And they're basically they're basically wheeling him in and letting people like take photos with him. I was like, I'm not doing that. Yeah. But, hey, I've it, heard I've heard though he's like one of the nicest guys in in hollywood or in the acting like there, there's a lot of nice ones yeah uh, like, which would make sense like i like i said like clue he was great in clue he yeah. was great in the worst witch of all i think is what it was like a like like everything a, he was in is actually yeah. good uh but it like i'm not kidding man that old tv series the the miniseries where he was pennywise mm-hmm. i went back and watched it when the new it came out whatever like two or three years ago yeah, and it still holds up, man. I, when I was a kid, I loved it, and it holds up now. But yeah, I'm a big Tim Curry fan, even like with, with Rocky Horror. So I have to be careful. 
I tell people like Rocky Hara because like when I was a kid, there was a whole subculture of it. That's where all the punk rock kids kind of went and, and congregated. So the first time I see that movie, I'm 13 years old. And it's blowing my mind. Like, what so am I even dragging everything? What's that? You you go up to the movie uh, when it when it plays during Halloween and uh, dress up and drag and everything. Yeah, so that's what was going on. Like you like so in, in the city I was you just in. Admitted you dressed up and drag. Oh no no I did. <laughs> I, I will tell you a funny story about that though. So I I didn't because like I said I was thirteen. I didn't know what was going on. Like my brother had been all his friends and they're just like man. I think it was like a, a, a Friday night or maybe a Saturday night, but it was at midnight at every weekend on at midnight they would play Rocky Horror. And everybody would show up. So all the same kids that would be at the punk rock shows and the hardcore shows would be at Rocky Horror. So you, and, and they get into it like, you know, you got people that are acting it out and all this. So at first, I, it's blowing my mind, one. Yeah, because it's a great of the, culture, man. <laughs> of the, yeah, like what's going on? And I'm like, here's this dude dressed up, you know, in, in like stockings and all this. But he's a great actor. You just get like sucked into the movie. But you also get sucked into the energy of like all these kids who are somewhat were, were kind of the rejected in society or were the ones who are on the outside or whatever. And they're all kind of, this is a safe area where they're just having fun. And, yeah. and you know, so um, there's a movie called perks of being a wallflower. Again, one of the greatest movies ever. So I got a lot of great movies, but that movie actually captures that spirit of being a teenager and going to go see that movie and, and the people who play it. So, when flash forward when i was on patrol i'm working one night and i'm basically just doing a detail where where i'm at a restaurant Mm -hmm. and a lot of drunk people would show up and then we'd have fights in the parking lot so so we just had a uniform presence to deter that well the whole crew that had been at um the movie theater doing rocky horror that night show up at the restaurant so they're all coming in their outfits and they're just, you know, like having a blast. And I, I remember that energy. So I'm talking to them and I'm like, oh, you got to be magenta. You got to be Rocky, you know, like you're Dr. Frank Furter. And they're like, and I'm in uniform. So the first thing they, they assume is I'm, you know, this robot of a cop. Yeah, you're not. And then they, yeah, so they're just like, oh, my God, how do you know Rocky Horror and all this? So I, so I tell them, man, I grew up going to shows at this place. You know, I used to go to Rocky Horror when I was a kid. Like, yeah. Somebody's got to talk about music. And this one guy comes over and he's like, don't take this the wrong way, but I really think you would make the perfect Rocky. Would you be willing to come and, and basically <laughs> run around in your underwear? I was like, nah, dude, like with all, with all due respect, I don't, I will not be going to <laughs> go dress up in my underwear and run dude, around, but I appreciate it. <laughs> well, look at, look at the people that do uh, cosplay of a cons. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a I have a buddy that comes on the uh, he's gonna come up on the show again, but uh, he 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 was on the show twice. Met him at a uh, at a con, and they do like some of them do like charity work and everything. Dress up like Batman, go to, to children's hospitals for okay, uh, yeah, uh, very sick kids. Uh, there's this one dude, uh, Richard and shit. Mm-hmm. drives in at a children's hospital in a Lamborghini. That's what his Batmobile is. Oh. And one time uh, cops pulled him over and everything. And they, they were just, it was like, I'm, we're not pulling you over because, you know, we're trying to, uh, you did something right. wrong. <laughs> yeah. We just are amazed 
There's one dude that <laughs> built a Batmobile. The, mm-hmm. the, the 89. Uh, 1989. I knew it. I knew when you say built yeah. a Batmobile, it's got to be the 89 one. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, so the nerd yeah. culture is nowadays and how much work they put into it. I'm talking, I'll, I'll, I'll send you pictures mm-hmm. of this dude. And he does he he does Joker he does uh, Batman Azrael he uh, he does a lot of them he does Spawn uh, Cowboy oh, Spawn wow, okay. okay yeah dude and he he he's he's still in the Air Force now and uh, if, if you look at him out of out of his costume and and in the military. You wouldn't even mm. think it. And then you go to a con and see him. I mean, like, this is what you do? This right. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to me, too. I wonder if mentally people are better off because they get to have that release. They get to, to – because oh, when, yeah. when you're a kid, I mean, that's why you play when you're a kid because it feels good. It feels well, good to be able to pretend or to do whatever. It, the way he describes it. Mm-hmm. is uh he doesn't see stuff like if someone's throwing something away mm-hmm. he doesn't see it as he, he he sees it as okay you're throwing away this uh paper plate we'll just go with paper plate okay someone's throwing away a paper plate nothing on it not dirty or anything like that he'll gather that paper plate it's like oh i can he'll fill her out for for like an hour and a half and make you know, a whole costume out of this paper. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he's the MacGyver of cosplay. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 I like that. So you got to think about like that creative brain is getting activated. And so if he's dealing with any kind of stressors in life, that's his counter instead of, like I said earlier, like doing drugs or, or drinking, or whatever. Yeah, he, but he made a freaking predator outfit. No, because it was so expensive. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, you, I mean, you have like horror cosplayers. You have like uh, uh, anything up in the world is cosplayers and everything. They'll dress yeah. up and everything, and it's just amazing <laughs> how much detail and mm-hmm. how much they go into it. I'm talking about months, even yeah. like rent fairs. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you, mm-hmm. have you ever heard? Was that Renaissance? Renaissance fairs? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 They'll build. I I, uh, I know this uh, uh, one girl. She's from the Navy, and she does chainmail. Oh, like makes it. You're saying, yeah, yeah, yeah that's she, crazy. But she also does like you know you can put it on your keys. Yeah, I got you. But yeah. she, and I, I tell you this, I will never wear chainmail. <laughs> <laughs> and she was using aluminum rings. Okay. And oh, so you're saying like you're. You're saying you would never wear it like legitimately like dressing up just because it's heavy. It, it's heavy, yeah. Oh, yeah. dude. I knew about I knew about uh Renaissance fairs because of a Red Fang. The band Red Fang has a video where mm-hmm. they're like these jerks in a car and they're getting drunk and then they start like messting with the the guys that are dressed up and sword fighting. Yeah. And then like most, people start most metal drunk. most metal back in the 80s and everything, they had a lot of uh medieval Yes, like Dio, Ronnie James Dio. Even even better, <laughs> even better. I found this out. Christopher uh, Christopher Lee, the the guy that did uh, Solomon 
in the Lord of the Rings movies? Yes. He has yeah. a heavy metal band. It, well, he really? had a heavy metal band. Oh, yeah. Oh. Do you he, know what he did he, in the military? He was a spook. Yeah. There was, yeah. There was a scene. You know that one scene where you get stabbed? Yes, in the he back. Had pull, he had to pull Peter <laughs> Jackson aside. like, yeah. when yeah. you stab a person, they don't scream like that. They just, oh. yeah. It's like, well, how do you know? Because I did that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like, after that yeah. point, you just go, yeah. Okay, yeah, there's a to do. <laughs> yeah, right. There's an old um, interview. I say old, I don't, I don't know how old it is, but there's an interview where someone's talking to him and they say, basically, like, didn't you do some spy work or didn't you do like whatever? Yeah, special but I can't you talk did about. something, you know, in, 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 in the military. And he goes, and he leans in, he's like, can you keep a secret? And they're like, yes. He's like, so can I. <laughs> and yeah. he just completely changes the topic. Dude, he was, he was, he was uh, very into uh, the, 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 the special mil- uh, the spec ops. Yeah. He would, yeah. he, he would collect patches. Okay. Of the spec ops. And there's like one in Germany that he could never get. Mm-hmm. And then, and this is like after the Nazi shit. Mm-hmm. And one of the uh, persons that he interviewed in Germany, one of the interviewers in Germany found it, found the patch and gave it to him. And you're looking at Christopher uh, Lee like he was he, he was in his 80s, pushing 90. Mm-hmm. But as soon as he got that patch, it was like a little kid. Yeah. Like, oh, oh, because it's have, history. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and he was like, I've I've been looking for this. Yeah, it, it, it's just one of those things is of, of people's hobbies, hobbies that you don't really look. You know, you don't hear much of stamp collecting or anything like that. But right, yeah, but like yeah, comics and like like what I just said, Match of the Gathering. You you didn't. There's there's a card in Match of the Gathering that's worth probably about one point five million dollars. Who's got it? I need it. Can I borrow it? <laughs> You can't. <laughs> well, why, wait, wait a minute. Why is it one point million dollars? It's it's very rare. okay. I got you. And and, and, and of, now and you're looking uh, at you're looking at uh uh like like with comics they have a grade. Uh, okay. I mean you can you can get the card for like thirty five thousand. That's the cheapest I've seen it. Good lord. Yeah, yeah. I I used to when I was actually when I was playing pro. Uh, my one of my decks, just one, uh, playing this game was about a thousand dollars. So then, because there's a because somebody out there is willing to pay it, is what you're saying, just like with comics, that's why the yeah. value goes up. So now you've got a generation that played this now has disposable income to be able to do that. That's right? a friend of mine's job. Yeah. That's a friend of mine's yeah. job. That's what he does because he has he has uh, uh, collected. Uh, such a vast amount and he's starting mm-hmm. to he he's still going to school but he has this uh a business that became a side business that became a business mm-hmm. i mean one of the cars is uh one of those cards that he has like a stack of uh, a lot of them that he can sell for like a thousand dollars each that's crazy man yeah and and you're looking at uh even with firearms, I I have one yeah. firearm that my dad bought five hundred dollars. It's from uh, that Clint Eastwood uh, forty four automatic. Okay, yeah, yeah. 
I tell you, hands down, I want to sell this thing. <laughs> Not because of the price of this gun, because mm-hmm. he bought it for five hundred. Now it's worth like six thousand. Ooh, but the Ooh. gun's crap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anybody, <laughs> anybody that would buy it, I'm like, here you go. He's like, I got. Oh, I've been looking for this. This is awesome. I was like, yeah. Whatever. I think I, I think there's a um, a Punisher poster that Mike Zek drew. Uh-huh. And the Punisher's holding like a like one of those auto mags with like a big ass scope on it or something. Because I'm picturing in my brain what you're talking about. You could probably I'm gonna get it. Yeah. Hold on. <laughs> so what do I do? I just sit here and talk to, talk to myself. I had already had it pulled out because I was showing something else. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah, you, yeah, you look can. at that thing, man, dude. I mean, look at it compared on my hand. Yeah, you it, could it, definitely you could put that on your ankle, no it, problem. In, in 1973, with like bell bottoms, you'd be able to wear that on the ankle. Oh, but I, <laughs> dude, <laughs> I literally do not hate. I, I do not like that gun. I mean, it looks. Of course, cool, you don't. <laughs> And when you and when it does shoot, okay, the fireball is probably about that far. <laughs> it, right. it is awesome to shoot. Yeah, great, great. It'll hit the target. Yeah, it's awesome. One, you got to find the bullets because <laughs> they're right. special and made bullets. Uh huh. And then, uh, it, this one we're having problems with one of the springs, and yeah. so it doesn't want to fire every time consistently yeah <laughs> and even if it was perfectly fixed mm-hmm. i mean you can you can you can just google the uh, 44 automag person shooting uh second or third round that that fired from it it jams almost uh, every time yeah so you know, like that. i i call it my i call it my decepticon gun just in case guns <laughs> coming out and, <laughs> I need something to take yeah. it out. It's yeah, yeah. If the person's hiding behind a refrigerator, you need to get to. Yeah. People still laugh at me because I will carry uh, a five-shot revolver, like an airweight, Smith & Wesson airweight. And, and like, when when I'm qualifying, because, you know, like, if you carry off, off-duty with our department stuff, you just qualify with the, the off-duty pistols you're carrying. Or you can carry on-duty as, like, a backup or whatever. Yeah, but they're reliable. But, well, yeah, like I started years ago, like when I was a rookie, um, the senior officers who I listened to told me that there were two things. They said, one, you don't want your backup weapon to operate differently than your primary weapon, which makes sense. Then there was also a school of thought that said, you want your backup weapon, if you're going to wear it somewhere, and I'm not going to talk about where we wear it, but wherever you wear it, it's going to collect dust and dirt rapidly because you're going in and out of cuts you're going in and out of abandoned houses like yeah and and after a while you're you're not going to be disciplined enough to be cleaning weapons every day after 12 hour shift you're gonna be exhausted so the old school guys always carried revolvers as backups because of that because it would get filthy and dirty and for the most part would still fire and if you're going to a backup weapon it may be because you've had a malfunction you're up close and if you need to put a revolver in someone's stomach or get a contact shot, 
because other people are around and you don't want to miss them and hit a backdrop, you can get in close with that revolver and they won't cause a malfunction. Well, they could if they grab the cylinder, but this idea of not hitting the front of the barrel and causing your slide to go back on a slide operated pistol. So I just started doing it, you know, back then because of that end, they're pretty accurate for, I mean, people think it's crazy, but if you actually do your fundamentals and practice, so I literally would walk around my house and stuff with dummy rounds, like plastic rounds, drawing my, my revolver, firing five shots, dumping the cylinder, speed load, dump it. Now, did you have, did you have the, uh, newer versions i think uh i think they did it in like 90s where you don't have to have a cowboy load so uh meaning what like one in the no you have an empty chamber oh no, no, no. okay okay the reason yeah. why it's called a cowboy load single shots you have to do that yeah like with these these are air weights that most of oh, okay, them okay, have okay yeah most of them yeah. have like a concealed hammer so they're all double action yeah okay so you don't have to worry about that you're right like a single Single action, the way I understand it, because of the way the mechanism is. Yeah, well, I, I, I learned, I learned yeah. with those, and they that's how it's taught. Yeah. How to, uh, put yeah. it, and there's like, hey, put this. Uh, it's a six shot, but yeah, it's called the cowboy load, because yeah. if anything hits it on top, yeah, it yeah, yeah. So, so the air weights were like fully designed, concealed hammer. You can put it in a pocket. I mean, I'm not recommending that, but if you had it in a pocket or whatever. When you draw it, it's a it's a very smooth frame, so it shouldn't get caught and snagged on clothing, which is another reason I liked it. It's another reason I will carry them them sometimes too because I do the New York Reload, but you can carry them on different parts of the body and easily conceal them, and you've got ten shots. Now people will come back and go, "Well, I can carry a Glock and have fifteen in the magazine." I'm like, "I got you. I'm, I'm with you." But I already own these revolvers, <laughs> so. Well, it's, I'm gonna continue it's like to uh, not learning how to grapple because you got a gun or you got a right. knife. Yeah. You're, yeah. you're a good knife fighter. I yeah. Mean, it's have all the options. You're I, one I can't, of those you people know, that ended up marrying like a Filipino woman that almost stabbed you almost every day. And that's why you learned how to knife fight. Oh, it sounds like you know. it wasn't fun. There's a <laughs> so, reason why I have an ex. Right, right. But yeah. no, I, I don't understand. I mean, just because I have this set of skills Mm -hmm. everything else is just optional yeah it it was like anything like you know (laughs) like i said i i do carry things like a smith and wesson shield nine millimeter right i'll carry that i like having options and i like being able to go okay i'm gonna wear you know a form-fitting t-shirt and a pair of shorts well I need something that I can conceal better than a full frame pistol. Right. So a lot of people would say, Oh, well, I got to have my 15 rounds. I got, okay, that's cool. That's what you need. But you're I'm just saying, at, you're also looking at you the bolt. Cause I got, I got one that holds like 22 rounds, one right, in the chamber yeah. and 21 rounds. Yeah. And you cannot conceal that thing unless you're carrying it. I didn't know. I can't even conceal it with a jacket. Right. So I'm not going to buy anything that I can't conceal and carry because I'm a cheap, cheap man who does not waste money on things that I can't use. To me, firearms are just tools. So I don't, I don't have like collector's items and stuff like that. I, the weapons I have, I carry. So even like my duty pistol is a, is a full frame pistol with a mounted flashlight. I could conceal it, but man, it's, it's a brick to do that. 
So I'm carrying that all day. I don't necessarily, when I'm off, want to be able to carry a full frame pistol also. Like I, I do want to kind of downsize. And, and people have argued, written articles for years of this is the best pistol versus this one. Like, I don't care. It's kind of like I know what I'm capable of. I train with them. I can conceal them. And at the end of the day, that's what I want. I don't want anyone knowing I have a firearm on me. I don't want anyone when they see me to go, oh, that's a cop. He walks like a cop. He looks like a cop. Most people see me and go, there's no way that guy is a gang expert, has worked gang units, has done the things that he's done because I don't carry myself that way. I'm not beating on my chest. I'm not this stereotype, whatever. But I love shooting firearms. I love shooting on the move, clearing vehicles, shooting from obstacles, malfunctions, like all of that. Yeah. I yeah, I start, I start. I started wanting to go into uh, uh, three guns because yeah. I mean the one that holds yeah. one. It's it's competition gun. Right. And okay. Hands down, that's that's probably the cheapest gun I have. <laughs> most <laughs> right. people, most people ask me it was like when I bring it out, and they're like, "Oh man, that, that probably costs you like two grand or something." I was like, no, right. it's a P three twenty X five. Okay. The secret of that gun is all you have to do is buy the trigger, and the trigger's the only thing that's uh, uh, serialized. Mm, okay. And you can grab the handle, uh, grab the handle, which is a uh, hundred bucks. The 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 special breathable uh, rail, another like uh, hundred and twenty, with the uh, ready on uh, rail and everything. A radio sites. The red dot. If I ever buy one, I found one probably with another twenty bucks. The mm-hmm. cheap one. I'm probably not gonna yeah. buy the cheap one. I'm probably gonna get the two hundred one. Mm-hmm. But with all of that, I mean, the most expensive thing on that gun that I I'm like questioning to buy for it is the magazines because it's like fifty bucks. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. It, for me that's it's expensive because mostly magazines are like 20 to 10 yeah. bucks sometimes you can go to a uh the uh gun show and get a magazine for like five yeah yeah and that's you get to the point where too where you gotta buy your support gear and I, well i'm safe you're gonna carry because i'm gonna back up like i said everything i have is functional so i want to carry it so I don't want to necessarily buy a bunch of new pistols because now I got to buy new new magazine holders. Yeah, I got to buy new holsters. Basically, you know. basically, once you buy something, like, you get a nice you get a nice uh, necklace. Yeah, you buy the outfit for the necklace. <laughs> right, right, right. The Adidas tracksuit. Yeah, no. um, yeah, but that's the whole thing. Is like, um, so some people will get frustrated with me because they will they will want to talk about like all these nuances about firearms. Because I, I'll say, like, yeah, I do like to shoot. I do like to train. And then it's like, well, I don't know, dude. Like, I don't know the nomenclature for all these pistols. I don't even know what we're talking about. I just know that I have these weapons. I like shooting them. And I like being proficient at them. You know, that, that it's, a, it's a challenge to me. Like, I'm not out on the range on, trying on, to out. Yeah. There's some people that go out, uh, like, uh, the curvature of the bullet, the grain. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just want to put bullets down that way. Yeah, I'm not smart enough to keep track of all that stuff. I know, I know it will confuse me. What I like is I learn the basics, I then master the basics, and I stick to the basics, and that's it. Like even in simunitions training, 
you know, we're fortunate in our department. We have an entire unit that does simulations training and does real world scenarios and then will <clears throat> run us through these scenarios and oftentimes film them and then study them and break it down like a researcher would and go, okay, look at what's happening. People are going up on these scenario traffic stops. And as soon as this driver gives them a bunch of paperwork to hold, they're holding it in their hands. And now when it's go time and they draw their, the, the, the driver draws their pistol, the officers are hanging on to the paperwork and trying to draw their pistols. They're trying to do magazine changes, holding the paperwork. We've known that prior to simunitions because when we were trained as rookies, it was when they hand you that license and, and registration, you clip it onto your underneath your ink pen on your uniform, get your hands free again. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Because you're going to need to draw a weapon or, or a tool or get hands on somebody very quickly. And if you're holding a driver's license and a registration card, your, your hands are may not, you may not release that and, and you're trying to grab things. And guess what? That happens in simunitions training. So then the unit can film it, research it, and then it, it reinforces that, like, this is why we tell you. When, you're, when someone's trying to hand you a bunch of stuff, that doesn't mean you need to take it. Tell them, sir, you can hang on to that paperwork. Just hold that paperwork for me right now. Because what was going on in the scenario is here's the paperwork as you, as they're holding these, this paperwork. Yeah, they're holding up, the paperwork, and then they're... And they're drawing a pistol. Exactly. They're, they're blocking, you're obscuring your view, and now you with, have to react. With corrections is uh, when, we, when we ask for their uh, ID to identify them and write, uh, to write yeah. off their information and everything like that, we're always taught, yeah. grab it, take two to three steps back. Yeah. Just in case they want to stab yeah. you or jump you yeah. or something like that. Yeah, so all these things that, that sadly, what we're also seeing in... in our area is a lot of the things that were hardwired into us were learned from officers getting attacked and shot or killed. And so we were always adamant, like, these are the things you do. And this is why, you know, this is why you don't turn your back on suspects. This is why you don't do this and this and this. And now we're starting to kind of see some of that breaking down. And I say, we, as in across the board, when I'm talking to all these other agencies and, and other officers and, and uh, deputies and stuff, they're seeing it too, like a, a newer generation that because they're having less proactive stops and because they're not kind of out there tracking down the, the violent activity and stuff, they're not, they're not living kind of on that edge. They're not understanding like every encounter is deadly. And this is why you do what you do. This is why you control the hands. This is why you watch the hands. This is why you don't let people get out of the car and walk around and walk behind you and, you know, Sadly, now you can watch videos and see the almost institutional amnesia occurring where the, the, that we're forgetting that. We as a profession, like, these are the things that have kept us alive this long. We can't let that go. We can't let people dictate the situation or control it because we don't want to become a news story or we don't want to hurt someone's feelings or come across as too aggressive. Well, Sometimes you do have to do that. Sometimes you have to tell someone, no, you can't walk around right now. You are being detained. You need to sit down, whatever, cross your feet at the ankles, hands on your knees, and do me a favor and just sit right here. We're going to work through this. It doesn't mean you're going to jail, but you got to do what I'm telling you right now because the situation has to be safe. Yeah, I see a lot of stuff where that, where we're losing that in general, and I'm watching videos and going, why is this officer allowing this person to walk around 
with their right hand in their pocket, blading their body, and basically telling them, well, I'm not going to do what you tell me. I'm, I'm going to I'm gonna walk off. I'm going to go do this. And I'll like, well, okay, you can't really. I need you to, well, maybe not. You know, it's like that indecisive. Sometimes you have to use yeah. the force. Or for uh, yeah. not like not like physical force, but forcing your voice. Yeah, you, yeah, command presence, and you yeah. have, like I said, you have to explain this is the situation, and you have some options. Let's go ahead and do this one, but understand that right now, by law, you are detained. And if I if I'm saying you need to sit on this curb to make this situation safe, you have to sit on the curb. That does not mean you're going to jail because I'm having you sit on the curb, and we don't have to get in this contest about. Who's the toughest? Just do me a favor and sit down. Let me work through what I got. And boom, I'm going to get you on your way. But then when it's like, no, I'm walking off. I'm going to put my hand in my pocket. Well, no, you're not. We're going we're gonna to grab that hand and we're going to control it. Because yeah. the hands are what kills you. And when the hands disappear, they come back with something in their hand. Yeah. The average person does not do that behavior. The average person actually does the hands up kind of thing. Like when they feel, oh, oh, okay, I'm sorry. I didn't know we were being serious. Damn, officer, like, put your pistol away. Well. I can't put my pistol away because you match the description of a shooter. And until we can figure out what's going on right now, my pistol's got to stay out. Do me a favor. Do exactly what you're doing. Keep your hands up and let's just talk through this. What's yeah. your name? Where are you coming from? I'm going to verify all that. You're probably not my shooter. I'm cool with that. But right now, this is what we got. And nine times out of 10, people are going to be cool with you. I've been in that exact scenario and had a pistol put in my ear by a patrol officer when I got out of the army. And I pull into a parking lot. I'm going to a gym to work out. I'm, I'm having fun, minding my own business. I whip into the parking lot. I lean down into my passenger floorboard to get a gym bag. When I come back up, this is at like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. When I come back up, my window's down, and the pistol is right there in my ear. And ooh, she's wow. telling me, do not move. I was like, ooh, okay. And what do I do? Instinctively, my hands go up because I'm a good citizen. I'm letting you know I'm not armed. Yeah. I'm following everything you say. And she gives me the commands, walks me out of the vehicle, puts me in an arm bar, puts me up against the, the car, and then is asking me questions. Who am I? Where am I coming from? All that. Well, I haven't done anything wrong. So I'm like, yeah, this is my real name. Or <laughs> my real name. This is my name. This is my vehicle. This is where I'm coming from. And I'm going to the gym. Stuff in the gym bag or, you know, wrist wraps, whatever. Because I know if I don't do this right, she potentially is going to think I'm a bad guy and shoot, right? So we, we get through it, we work through it, and then she, she tells me, this is what happened. We had a woman basically get her, her nose broken or her jaw broken, like she's getting beat up by her boyfriend. The boyfriend description is matching your vehicle, your complexion, your hair color, height, weight, everything, and you are literally within like a minute or a minute and a half drive from the house. So until she could prove who I am, I'm the suspect all day. And that was one of those things where in the past, when I was a kid, we had run from the police a lot. And, uh, yeah. We were always respectful, but this was much different. This was not me on a skateboard and some, you know, cop like chasing me because he wants me to not skate downtown. This is a officer with her pistol out and things are real serious, real quick. I do everything I'm supposed to. I survived and she actually told me, Hey, I appreciate that. You know, because she explained what happened. It made sense to me. I didn't internalize it and go, Oh, she's picking on me or she thinks I'm a threat because whatever it was. I matched the description of this guy who just beat this woman and broke some things in her face. 
and fortunately they knew who he was, but I matched that description. So once she saw my ID and knew who, you know, I'm, I'm telling her the truth, boom, I go in the gym and work out. But, and then years later, I actually run into her as I'm helping her agency on a homicide. Oh, and I told her the story and she's like, get out of here. Are you serious? I was like, yeah, yeah. So it's pretty cool. It's like full circle, you know? Um, but that's why I always tell people just follow the commands. It doesn't matter right, wrong, and different. None of that. Just listen when the pistols come out or when the commands come out or the voice gets a little more authoritative or whatever, like follow the commands, live through the incident or the, or the investigation. And they're going to tell you exactly why they stopped you and what's going on. Yeah, Everything has to be. times I got a, I, I've gotten out of tickets only because I was like, one, I was respectful. Two, I had, and, and there, there's tons of, he should have just arrested me. <laughs> I was, I was far gone. <laughs> right, right. And I was respectful. I knew I was in trouble. I was like, you got me. Right. Yeah. Let's oh, see. yeah. I just wanted to get out of here when I don't get killed. <laughs> right, right. Or get arrested or a ticket. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like that. And, yeah, and, I, and usually yeah. nothing like that happens. Yeah, I, I've been, like I said, I was always very respectful. Even when I ran and, and got caught and things like that, I was always respectful because I knew that was their job. Our job was to skate and have fun. Their job was to catch us uh, for skating or tra- – we used to do a lot of trespassing. we would do a lot of like swimming and swimming pools and apartment complexes where we weren't supposed to be at 12 o'clock, one o'clock in the morning, just stupid stuff. But kids don't do that. But, but you know what? Kids don't do that much, that much anymore that you hear about that I hear about. (laughs) Uh, yeah, I've chased some kids from swimming pools and I thought it was funny because I was like, damn, I'm now (laughs) the guy chasing them. And it's just funny. Like one, one of these kids, like one group of kids, they're trespassing. We had a gang problem in that neighborhood. So I was worried when I got there, like, oh, man, if, they, if these are gang members, they may be, may be fighting people or whatever. I get there, and they're basically just kids that are roughhousing, and the parents there didn't recognize them. And so when they asked them, like, because they watched them come into the pool, they're like, hey, which house do you live in? Where do you live? And, of course, they were like, F off, you know, started cussing at them. So they called the police. Well, I get there with another officer, and we basically, as we walk up, Boom, they start jumping the fence and running, which is what we did when we were kids. Right? Yeah. We knew we were caught. But one of them yells for his buddy to wait for him, and he yells his government name, right? His <laughs> real name. So as I'm running, man, like I'm running, and, you know, sometimes when you're in foot pursuits, you're, t- you're kind of talking and, and making a game of it or whatever. So as I'm running, I'm yelling his government name. And he's looking over his shoulder like, how does this guy know who I am? <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like once we catch him, it's like, look, dude, you can't be at the swimming pool. You can't be trespassing. Don't run from the police. To me, it's funny. You know, I heard your friend yell your your real name. That's the only reason I knew your name. Like, because it was freaking him out. Like, how does this cop know who I am? Like, I would, I would, I would totally mess with his head. It's like they hire telepaths. <laughs> you realize that, right? Yeah, we, we I, I, I have messed with people in the past for, <laughs> for other things like that. You know, I like. I will say a lot of stuff that people that I know about their personal lives and then say, like, you know, if I know all this about you, imagine the crimes I already know that you've committed. <laughs> and they're just like, oh, my gosh, because my brain would I, I will. Um, it's almost like photographic memory. Like I'll remember names and faces 
and my brain just kind of categorizes things. So it will categorize a person into what gang they are, like, like the overarching gang, what set, what line, you know, like what little squad or what little group they hang out with, what area they're known to hang out in, like who their family members are. It's almost like my brain just like brackets all this stuff. Basically, you took the lemonist pill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just how my brain works. Like even when I listen to bands, my brain will be like, oh, this band's on this record label, has this many albums with this record label, has two or three albums with this record label. It's, I don't know why it does it. It just does. Now, when, so it's actually worked great for games. Now, when you were actually in those uh, foot pr- pursuits and everything yeah. like that, did you, in the back of your mind, it's like, I'm sorry, Officer Steve, that I ran from you? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But that's what I'm saying is, like, I can relate. Like, I know this kid's not doing what's necessary to get away. He's making some rookie mistakes. But I also remember me being that young kid doing stupid stuff like that and then and feeling like, all right, of course I'm going to cut a break. I'm always I, I, like I, I was always stopping a lot of cars and cutting brakes because I really didn't want to take money out of people's pockets. And so when I would stop, I'd stop a lot of cars to find out what's going on. Like you know, on the thoroughfares, like the the major roads in my beat and stuff, I'd stop cars and then see an address and go, okay, look, I stopped you because you're not wearing your seatbelt, but is this your correct address? Yes, I live in this neighborhood. I've lived there for 20 years. You know, please don't write me a ticket. Yeah, whatever it is. And then it's like, okay, I'm not going to write you a ticket. I want you to wear your seatbelt. I've seen enough people's faces through windshields. I've seen enough dead, dead kids in car crashes. Seatbelts will save your life. Please wear a seatbelt. I don't want you to have to pay $300 for a court fine. Just tell me you're going to wear a seatbelt. But while I got you here, your neighborhood is in my beat. And right now I'm very interested in the murder that happened in this cul-de-sac. Or I'm interested in the shooting that happened here. And then you see like the light go off and they're like, oh, you're, you're like a cop. Like you want to actually come in and help. Cool. This is the rumor in the neighborhood. So-and-so did the shooting because so-and-so had whatever beef with this girl or that guy or whatever. So they give you the rumor that's going around in the neighborhood. You clear the traffic stop. They're happy because they didn't get a ticket. They're happy because they're part of the solution. And they also hopefully understand I'm stopping you because I want you to wear a seatbelt because it's going to save your life, right? Yeah, it's basically the uh, you know? IKEA effect. I mean, Dan keeps, on, yeah. uh, Dan keeps on talking about it. Uh, you could do eighty percent of the work, and someone comes by and does twenty percent of the work uh, with you, and feels a little bit better that he helped you out. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like that, that is, and that's part of like some of the techniques that I tr- to, to teach is like go in and build that network of people in the in the neighborhood because. They, that's where they live. They want to own that neighborhood. They want to be safe again. They'll give you the information. You just got to act on it. It's like armed with that information from the traffic stop. I can go back and talk to, as a patrol officer, I can go talk to a detective and say, Hey, remember that shooting two weeks ago? Well, that that's my beat. I don't like when people get shot. I just got some information from this source that this is what happened. And something very small like that, that says the rumor is whatever magic did the shooting. Well, what does magic look like? He's six foot two, whatever, mohawk, uh, silver front tooth, walks with a limp. Oh, I know exactly who that is. Where does he live? Three houses down. Oh, well, what do we got? We had a report the day prior to the shooting. He punches a girl in the face or whatever it is like that. That little bit of information breaks the case open. Now the detectives can actually work that and case. More of the docs. Yeah, make an arrest of it and then make the example. Put the information back out there in the neighborhood. Hey, we made this arrest. Know that 
People in the neighborhood care about their homes. We care about safety, and we don't want shooting and gun violence. Great job. This person's charged. We wish we could have prevented it, but we didn't know this was going to happen ahead of time. Boom, move on to the next one. So it's that idea of like, if you can do that as a patrol officer, which, which I was hooked then when I knew I had the ability to not control, but the ability to affect the criminal landscape, I didn't go federal. My plan was to stay local for a couple of years, build my skill set, and then go FBI or ATF, right? Go do mm-hmm. some federal stuff. Well, when I was on this department or my department, when I started as, as an officer and I could do these things, I was hooked. Car chases, foot pursuits, getting guns off of people, flipping gang members into informants. I'm like, why would I now want to switch and go federal and potentially never get to have this much fun and be stuck doing some assignment that I may not be happy doing? But all the movies are about the feds you know, all the, all the big cases. Cause they get to work some really big, great cases. A lot of people forget it's the patrol is where the action is. And it can be where the most reward is where you, you come to work every day and you begin to condition gang members to know, Hey, I'm working. I'm going to be cool with you. I'm going to laugh with you. I'm going to tell a joke and I'm going to move on. But when I come back through here, if somebody's selling or I, or I catch somebody with a gun, you got to go to jail. And if we, if we have to mix it up out here, it's because you didn't act right. Not because I'm aggressive or heavy handed. I'm, I'm cool with everybody. So you condition gang members and drug dealers every day with your actions that I'm, I'm the guy who's just going to try to keep the peace. But if all of a sudden you do something wrong and we're fighting out here, it's nice whenever other gang members are like, why did they're telling their buddy, why did you do that to him? He's the one dude that comes by here and is cool with us. Like, you made him mad. Like, now y'all are out here fighting around like you're in a schoolyard. That was stupid, man. Like, why'd you do that? So you can do that as a patrol officer and have that effect, but you got to get out of the car. You talk to people. You don't search people every time. You, you know, you're not looking for the crime necessarily. You know they're going to be out on the block every day. You know they're going to hang out of the hotel or whatever. Like, wherever their area of operation is, you just go and talk to them and let them know, like, look, I'm going to be out here riding around. You're going to see me. I'm clocking in. You're clocking out. You mentioned earlier, it's like, hey, do me a favor. Promise me you're not going to get shot tonight. And they're like, man, why you say that? Don't jinx me. You know, it's like, no, I know the probable, the probability that you're going to get shot in the next six months is very high because you're standing here every day flat footed. So if you have an enemy, they're going to roll by here and shoot you up. It's very easy. And you're in it in your enemies. You know, they're going to be posted up somewhere. You're going to go by and shoot them. I'm just telling you, do me a favor. Don't get shot today. I don't want to see you get shot. I don't want to see your grandmother come down here and have to hold your head with half your brain hanging out because you took an AK round to the dome because you were standing out here selling 20 rocks or selling balloons of heroin to kids you grew up with, man. Like that's the life you're in. I don't want that to happen to you. And so a lot of times then the guys are like, oh, and you just start conversations. I mean, I would pull up and talk to guys about music, about history, about their, their uncles that maybe I knew or went to school with or whatever, and then, boom, you just move on. So it's this idea of, like, just building rapport and talking with guys so that then when the, when the incidents happen and bad stuff kicks off, these guys are willing to talk to you, and they're willing to give information. And sometimes when they need help in their lives and they want to change, then and you offer them help, they're willing to take it because they know – 
your motives for putting on that uniform are not to go out there and make money off of arrest because we don't make money off of arrest. We don't have a quota. It's I want to keep bullets in the barrel of every gun in the city limits, including mine in my holster. And the only way I can do that is if you guys are going to promise me you're going to keep the peace. I think word up. I think the one thing though that you shouldn't lie about quotas because I it, it it goes around with all cops that they they have to make that quota. No, no, no. Oh, okay, I got you. I thought you'd be serious. I was like, no. whoa. No, no, yeah. no, no, no. No, that's the that's the crazy thing. Hey, I, I, I heard that, and I talked to cop. I, I talked to cops. It's cop. Yeah, my my dad and everything. I was like, do they have quotas really? Because he's always yeah. said that. Yeah. That, oh, they're pulling me over because they got a quota this month. No, like we don't we don't have quotas now. They may have had that, you know. Yeah, they probably did. Ago. Yeah, they probably did because you have to measure someone's activity. You are literally wasting the taxpayer's money when you come to work and sit in the parking lot all day and only respond to dispatches because now crime is going to increase in your area. If you're not stopping cars, your collisions are going to increase because people are going to speed and reckless driving, and you can see it in every city. So there's not such thing as a quota. When I was on patrol, we would have to fill out daily activity logs, and it's still the same thing. You have to be able to explain what you did in an 8, 10, or 12-hour shift because yeah. there's so but, much chaos. I mean, you have the same thing when you're in the military, what, what you did that day. And some of them, like, right. uh, uh, when they're doing, like, uh, security, uh-huh. I, I forget what it's called. But I, I was talking to a Marine that he was, like, because uh, he had, a, like, a – a funny thing that he had to put in the log. He was talking about because you got to do an hourly log. Okay. What you do? Uh, what's happening every hour? Like uh, nothing happening. Uh, did rounds? Uh, found nothing. Well, one of the first sergeants was uh, having an affair, and oh. he kind of put that in the log. Oh no! And well, hey, he 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 got it. He, it was one of those things he couldn't get. It was like, I can't yell at you. Right. But don't ever fuck that again. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. Make yeah. stuff up. Yeah. So the, that's the thing. Pencil. Yeah. So that was the thing. Like when we were doing daily activities, the, the sergeant would then look at your, your, your daily or whatever. And then would talk to you about whatever you were doing. Because uh-huh. we were so beat centric, like our area that we were responsible for in our district was very small plots of land. So you divide up the district, a certain region of the city in these small plots of land so that each officer stays in that geographical area and knows the, the heartbeat of that activity. You know what the store looks like in your most violent area because everybody goes there and buys drinks and chips and, you know, whatever sundries they need that they're quick to buy. But you also know the same 10 guys that hang out there every friggin' day, right? Yeah. So, what, so you know that, yeah, get. you know, you know, when you pull up on that block one day and there's no one at the store, something bad's about to happen. Do you know what I'm saying? So, no, no, but, I, but, I totally get it. Yeah. So the activity logs and stuff and, and the ability to follow that is, is one, as a sergeant, you want to know can an officer go out there, enforce the law, clear dispatches, you know, like get to a scene, work it. Can they stop a car safely? Can they use their discretion and, and write tickets and all this stuff? So, like, there are officers sometimes that will not go and stop cars. They don't want to create a problem. 
So now you're looking at it going, okay, on your beat or your area, you're never stopping cars for 12 hours. So if you're taking motor vehicle collisions at a major intersection every day at five o'clock PM during rush hour, it's because there's never blue lights going on there. Like you need to be over there stopping cars so that as citizens are driving through, they see the traffic stops and go, Oh yeah, I forgot. I don't need to do 60 miles an hour in a 45 mile an hour zone and run this stoplight, you know, or whatever it is. Like I need to, I need to be aware of my surroundings. The blue lights is, is that's the reminder because no adult wants to have to get tickets and, and go to court or pay these fines. I'm not saying write tickets every car you stop. You have to have that police presence. Right now, you got major cities and, and major uh, suburban areas with urban sprawl that are pushing motor vehicle death collisions, three and 400% increases. And then you look at their traffic stops and their traffic stops have dropped by 70 or 80%. So you do the correlation and go, okay, these, the people that are getting ki- or the people that are getting in these collisions are not drunk. This is not DWIs. This is reckless driving. This is speeding. This is constant um, conditioning of drivers to go. No one's around. I'm not getting a ticket. So I'm going to, I'm going to floor it. You know, I'm going to take my chance. Yeah. Cause it's hard. It's, it's very hard to go through the same intersection every day when you're going to and from work and you constantly see blue lights out there and officers or not even, maybe they're not even have someone stop, but they're parked near the intersection and they're waiting. So, you know, they're like, Oh, that's, they're waiting to stop somebody. You're now going, okay, for the next week, that thoughts in your head. And then the next week goes and maybe you don't see a cop, but then the next week you see them, you know, like, man, they're on their a game. I'm not trying to get a ticket. When I hit this area, I'm going to slow down. That's how you actually, as a beat officer can decrease motor vehicle collisions in certain areas where they're re- repeatedly occurring just by your sheer presence. Like that's, you don't have to write every violation. I never did. I would stop a lot of cars and just be like, look, pump the brakes when you come up to this stop sign because everybody runs the stop sign and they get hit in the side of the, the driver's side door and you're going to get, you're going to get hurt. You're coming through here twice a day, every day, going to and from work. I'm glad you got a job. I want you to get home to your family or whatever. Like just hit those brakes, stop, look both ways and then roll on, you know, but I'm not going to write you a ticket. I just don't want to see you out here dead. And then boom. Cause then if I'm not writing tickets, I'm just doing discretion. Then I can stop 20 cars in like an hour and a half and what am i doing i'm conditioning those daily drivers slow down be aware of your surroundings now i don't have to take three and four motor vehicle collisions in this 12-hour shift i may only take one or i may not even take that one so i'm doing more proactive measures because i know the heartbeat of my 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 beat i know i'm going to be there and do what i like hey guys i'm gonna be out of service i'm gonna bang out about five or six traffic stops here because i don't want to be taking motor vehicle collisions but then two hours later, hey, I'll go with you and we'll go search this abandoned house. And what are we going to find? We're going to find guys hiding in there with guns, gang members in there packaging up drugs, like or ghosts. Oh, or <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Full circle or yeah. ghosts. I'm out of here, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm ready. I'm ready for Tansy to tell me some stories about ghosts and whatever else he's got going on. But uh, no, it also works kind of in reverse, and it. I don't want anybody to do what I suggest you to do, but uh, like uh, if, if you're leaving a bar, like at 11 to like two to four, that's the, that's the drunk DUI hours. Okay. Yeah. And then, and that's any town, depending on uh, what time the, I mean, uh, what, what time you y'all's bars close down? Uh, two o'clock, but I've never, I've never done a DWI arrest like on my own. So 
I don't know what the witching hour is because my beat didn't have like that type of traffic. We had shootings and, and drug sales and stuff. But yeah, our bar uh, shut down at two a.m. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, most towns that the depending they do two o'clock. When I was in Abilene, it was like midnight. So you had like eight eight to midnight to uh, mm-hmm. one o'clock. Okay, during that time frame, drive carefully. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Don't cause any trouble. Of course, Abilene was totally different because it was a very high uh, religious town that got pissed off of a lot of the airmen, like uh, getting drunk and belligerent. And if you Mm -hmm. stub your toe and tripped a little bit, they would arrest you. Yeah. Yeah. Because they want to condition you to behave properly instead of beating up all their citizens and impregnating all their daughters. Right. (laughs) That's what it felt like when I was in the army. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, like, I, I did not like, I would drive 45 minutes away from my post to go to a major city because when I went to any bars or any restaurants outside of post, everybody stared at you. Like you were the worst person in the world. Oh, I didn't they I, see you're high and tight, you know, back yeah. then they knew. I didn't, I didn't have to worry about that uh-huh. yeah, because Abilene is three hours away from Wichita Falls, my hometown. Mm-hmm. I never. I went to the Air Force. I never left Texas. <laughs> okay. Going to EY. The only yeah, time yeah. I went, I, w- I went anywhere, and I, I've been all of Europe, most of Europe, and mm-hmm. Middle East. But those are TUIs. Those are okay. my duty station. I, 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 <laughs> I, I didn't even 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 for my basic. I went to uh-huh. San Antonio. Oh, that's where nice. Air Force is basic. So I, I never yeah. really left Texas. That's kind of nice though. Texas is a good state, right? Yeah, yeah, but it's one of the, it's one of those things. It's one of those things we're getting. A lot of the people that ha, that 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 are on my podcast now that are like you know the uh, the extra hosts I have. Mm-hmm. It's really funny because uh, Johnny he he lived here for a long time. He lived in Wichita Falls for a long time and lived in Texas, and then he went to the army. But he was technically never born. In Texas, he was born in uh, San Diego, I think, mm-hmm. California. Mm-hmm. Okay. And my other buddy, I think, is uh, Wisconsin or Michigan. Mm-hmm. And they're like, "Oh yeah, Texas is so great and everything like that." And I'm like, "Huh? <laughs> were you born in Texas? What, right. No, we were a tramp plant. Yeah, don't don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm one of those people that." Decided to go up to the Alamo and fight a Mexican. <laughs> it's part of my uh, my heritage. Really, oh, it was it was it was funny. Yeah. A friend of mine that was Mexican, me, we just uh-huh. played fight in front of the Alamo. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and and I was like, and and then the other thing is, uh, we went the they have a Dr Pepper museum here in Texas. That's where Dr Pepper originated in Texas. I have a Dr. Oh. Pepper Museum mm-hmm. and the Texas Rangers Museum, which is in Waco, mm-hmm. which, by the way, that little area, the, mm-hmm. the, the, oh, David Koresh. <clears throat> yes. Yeah. Actually, I did a, I did a psychos and sociopaths episode uh, uh, about David Koresh and that whole situation there, the whole yeah. shootout and everything like that. Mm-hmm. One of the guys who is, I, I think he's still living there. When he was a kid, they would go there and pick up boxes of ammo. If they were Ooh. that, that's that's how much ammo they was there. Yeah, I they remember that. Get, like 
Yeah, they got like shell case. It was like, we just go over there, get shell cases and boxes of ammo. We just come back and and just rinse with either room and Pete. I was like, Yeah, are you kidding me? That much? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you talk about Texas Rangers Museum, have you ever heard of Frank Hamer? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I did an article on him because everybody knows man. him. What's that? A highwayman. He was. Yeah, uh, yeah. After okay. After Mama, who was a, from what I hear from history, she was a con. Uh, and she disbanded the Texas Rangers. And then the okay. Bonnie and Clyde stuff happened. Mm-hmm. And then she had to get uh, Frank Haynes and he got somebody else. I f- can't remember the other guy. Uh, but there were a few of them. There were actually a few of them. There were, yeah. there were uh, I think, three other guys. One of his, like, buddies that he, he yeah, was yeah. too. Right, yeah. And after they did the escapade and everything like that, they reinstated the Texas Rangers after that. Mm-hmm. Because of yeah. Clyde. Yeah, I think that at one point early on, they had um, some shootings down on the border that were basically like, that was could have been classified like there was just a bit a lot of controversy around it so yeah there, some of the stuff i read obviously i wasn't living then so i'm, I'm speaking on things that i've read so i'm yeah. trying not to mess up the facts but there are certain passages coming in from mexico into to texas that they knew if they set up on those passages at like three in the morning these bands of 20 or 30 dudes would come through these, these basically these criminals and they're all on horseback and so they would come in to Texas, commit crimes, and then go back to Mexico, right? Yeah, it was it was a lot of uh, cattle rustling. Yeah, so they're like they're having like shootouts at night <laughs> along these paths. And Frank Hamer was one of those guys that early on in his career was just really good at at fighting and shooting. And so and he was a very good study of human behavior. So I mean, there's like all these different shootings he's involved in times he got shot, you know, times that, um, he, he became a town marshal in, um, and the the name of the town will come to me in a minute. It's in Texas, but he goes into that town and he's getting paid by, by the town to basically be the, one of the only cops there. Well, they had this thing called the white man's union. It was sort of like the Klan version sort of in Texas, white men that were, were trying to subjugate, uh, black families in, in this town. So the t- town was kind of segregated, right? So Frank Hamer gets in there and it's basically it, the town's kind of telling him, Hey, the white man's union is law here. That's who runs things. <laughs> he goes in the way, the way this one book documents it. He goes in, sees this dude standing out in the street, goes over to him. He's got a long beard and grabs him by his beard and yanks him straight down into the ground, like face first, boom, bust his jaw and face all up. And tells him, the white man's union is not the law in this town. I'm the law in this town. And then he would go out there at like noon or one o'clock and practice shooting to show the whole city or the whole town, you can pull a gun on me, but I'm going to smoke you. Like, I know what I'm doing with this thing. So he had, he had made a few arrests where people wanted to resist, and he, he'd put the knuckles on them. So they realized he can fight and he can shoot, but he was also winning the hearts and minds of the, of the town. And and I forget the jazz or the uh, yeah jazz musician's name, but there's a famous jazz musician who was a teenager in that town, and he would actually ride around with Frank Hamer, 
on like a, a like a horse and carriage. And so if anybody looked at this kid wrong or said anything rude to him, he would deal with him, right? Like it was almost like this kid was like his little sidekick. But he ends up basically destroying the white man's union in that town. They build a statue for it, right? Oh, wow. He, yeah, so he moves on and, and, and goes, I think he goes back to the Texas Rangers then. And when he's in the Texas Rangers, like at, at the height of his activity, he's busting up lynch mobs. So you're getting into like the red summer of like, like 1919 and stuff. So you start getting into these eras of lynch mobs and the Texas Rangers were having to come in and stop them. Right. So there are stories that he usually use a, a Tommy gun or a Thompson machine gun, but there are stories of like him going to the courthouse in, in these small towns. And usually the, the, the pattern was, a black man would be charged with a murder, a shooting, a rape or something. And then the word would get out, Hey, tonight the lynch mob is going to come to the jail and either some crooked ass deputy is going to let them take them out of the cell, or they're going to force the deputy down at gunpoint and then get the keys and take, you know, the, the, um, alleged suspect out and then, and lynch him. Right. So this stuff's going on all over Texas where these Rangers one, and that's what they talked about. These, uh, lynch mob, um, guys or the texas rangers would come in and bust up the lynch mobs so there's a stories of like frank hamer getting to these courthouses standing on the steps waiting for the lynch mob to show up with a tommy gun on his hip and they show up and he would basically tell them come on you, you come on and come in this courthouse i got a bullet for everybody in the crowd and so it was almost like these mobs were so used to officers being scared or potentially um sympathizing with them because of racism and stuff and he's like no 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 like this is my job right now is that is to stop you and if by stopping you i got to empty this this magazine and reload and that's what's going to happen so sometimes that would solve the problem other times he would build like he would have informants he would go in get the inmate or the, the uh suspect the alleged suspect and smuggle them out like a back door in a disguise or whatever and hide them out, um, they jump trains, or they would hide them out in houses, and so then when the lynch mob would show up, there's nobody there for them to kill or to lynch. Um, so there's like one story where he and a deputy had to flee from a courthouse. They set the courthouse on fire and tried to burn them out, and so he and this deputy take the the um, uh, the defendant and run out the back, and they're like hitting all these swamps and and going for like 45 minutes get to a train, jump a train, and then and go to, like, a completely different city and then get linked back up with their rangers and be like, look, this is what we had to do. Crazy. So you always hear about Bonnie and Clyde, but you don't hear about, like, all this stuff. He investigated, yeah. he investigated election fraud with then Lyndon Johnson and his campaign. And so it was like this ballot um, stuffing box it was like called like ballot box 13 or whatever he was part of that investigation of like this political corruption it's crazy but when he tracked down bonnie and clyde he was using things like knowing what cigarettes they smoke and both of them smoke different types of cigarettes so when he would get leads because when you're hunting fugitives it's like you work the people around them the family members the former gang members or the former members of their of their uh, group so he figured out what cigarettes they smoked he would get leads on them. He knew they would, they would camp out along these country roads. He'd find where they had built a fire 
and he would see those same cigarette butts at these fires and say he would know I'm on the right trail. And so then it all breaks down to the final shootout, and that's what everybody always argues is that, oh, well, Frank Hamer and, and the Texas Rangers and these guys just ambushed him and shot and killed him in cold blood. Well, you got to go back to what they were doing. I think they had killed up to nine people, I think two or three officers. Like every time they were confronted six, by the police. I think six officers. Or there you go, yeah. Six officers, and I know there was a couple of gas station attendants. Yeah, and, and they're rolling around with like these BARs, like these automatic rifles that they had stolen from these armor. And I think they yeah. like, they, they cut them down but, so they could conceal dude, them. Like, well, what's even more fascinating on that? Because I did Bonnie and Clyde. Because I did uh, any stumps of cleared hot. The, he keeps on talking about the this couple that was one was a Navy SEAL. Uh, yeah, you know his bud class and everything. I finally found all the information on him and then i ended up doing bonnie and claude because there there's there's two things on that uh uh there's a theory that bonnie was one that instigated clyde to do all this stuff <laughs> right yeah, yeah yeah and the reason why i came up with that was because the andy stuff murders uh I, I don't want to say it like that but you know the the stuff that andy stuff uh was talking about the woman actually instigated the guy to do the murder okay and the other thing is after bonnie and clyde died back then they base man the crowd basically was almost like i don't know if you could consider it grave robbing at that point in time because they weren't yeah. in the grave but that's they were they were like yeah. fingers off yeah 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 uh, yeah uh, grabbing ears. stuff from the crime scenes and stuff yes yeah. they uh yes. i mean the person that because the car was stolen mm -hmm. and they were about to uh one of the officers because uh i think they didn't get the reward they were supposed to get the reward but the only thing they ended up getting was uh, uh like the car it, it was it's i forget yeah yeah but the owner of the car wanted the car back and he ended up selling it i think it's in vegas now and, it probably uh, is like that museum, yeah, that, you know, yeah. in Vegas, and they they bought it for like two hundred thousand mm, dollars. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but but you know, like when I was reading all it, it's a really good book. It's it's basically just Frank Hamer, Texas Ranger, and it's it's like a four or five hundred page book. But that dude, like when you read about his life, it's crazy. I mean, he got shot. I think the first time he was shot, he was like sixteen or seventeen, Jeez. and he got shot with like buckshot from a, a neighbor. Uh, at one point, somehow he stumbled into a person that wanted to rob like a bank or something. And he was young. He's like 17 or 18. They were, they were like trying to talk him into going and robbing a bank, but it just, it's a crazy, crazy life. But that whole idea of tracking fugitives and, and they kind of brought him in, like you were talking about earlier, it's like, Hey, this is what you do. Cause he was really good at finding people like in the books, got all these different cases of of a cop killer from like Utah that had come, he was jumping the border. So he, they knew he was fleeing back from Utah to try to get into Mexico. And because Frank Hamer knew the border border um, passages and stuff like that, they would set up for these guys and then get into these shootouts. I mean, I, I want to say, man, he was in like, like 30 or 40 shoot shootings, probably more than that. Cause I, I'm not I'm terrible with numbers. And it, it's been a couple of years since I read that article, but I just remember being, blown away by all the other stuff he did like that whole thing yeah. it was Nav in navasota uh texas 
same thing like that, like where he just is is bouncing around doing these things. Yeah, they have a but, whole area uh, up at the Texas Ranger Museum of all of his all of his. Yeah, it is. Yeah, but but, it, but what's what's crazy to me is like, and oh, and his wife. So he passed away. His wife sued the movie production company or whatever that made the Bonnie and Clyde movie in the like late seventies, I think it was or whatever. Um, uh, sixty nine seventy, I think. Yeah, oh, somewhere oh, around it, there. So it, yeah, it was. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, right? yeah. The, With, the, uh, Faye Dunaway and um, God, I can't remember his name. Yeah, Dick Tracy. Uh, it'll come to me. Warren yeah, Beatty. So, Warren Beatty. Yeah, oh. Warren Beatty and, and Faye Dunaway. So. And Uncle Jesse from Dukes of Hazard. I think Uncle yeah. Jesse may have played Frank Hamer, but there was they use his real name in the movie and do a whole scene where they like kidnap him and he's scared to death. And all. well, that none of that ever that happened. never happened. Yeah, none of it happened. So when people watch that movie and then they hear about Frank Hamer, and if I remember right, that was supposedly the motive why he ambushed them, which was not true at all. Like mm -hmm. it never happened. And he didn't ambush them, you know, or whatever. So, but anyway, that, um, she had sued them and I think got like $30,000 maybe or something because they had used his name without his permission and basically defamed his character, you know? Yeah. But, but back then it was just like crazy to think that, and, and there was a famous actor that loved to talk to him because that actor would, would play these like cowboy roles and these cop roles. And so he would love to talk to Frank because the way the book documents it is like Frank would talk about these shootings. Like it's nothing like, yeah, this is what happens. You know, usually if you can get the first shot, you know, this person's worried about going to prison and worried about getting shot. And like we train. So all I'm worried about is are my sights on him and am I squeezing the trigger? <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like with this actor and I can't remember his name right now, but he loved talking to Frank because Frank was doing these real life things that this guy only portrays in the movie. Yeah. So it's, it's just pretty, it's a great book, man. But, but like you've been there to the museum, which I would imagine is really, really cool. But yeah, it's, it's, but doing like, uh, the Texas museums around here, like, uh, the Gonzalez one was kind of depressing. The Gonzalez town, uh, you know, okay. the Gonzalez flag come and okay. take it. Uh, uh -huh. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know how big that cannon is? Uh-uh. Take a, I don't, I don't take know. It, take a, take a, uh, a monster cannon. It's pretty much almost the same size. Good Lord. That's, that's the size of the cannon. Uh-huh. It was, it's, it's really small. You could, you could handle it. You could like okay. pick it up. Yeah, but, yeah. but, but the story about that was, is they finally got that cannon fixed and the Mexican army wanted to, uh, you know, take away the, that cannon and add it to their arsenal and everything. And uh, the the town of Gonzales didn't want them to do it, mm. so they said, "Come and take it," and they fought for it. Oh, okay. And it, it, <laughs> but the other the other place, uh, if you ever come uh, come to Texas to visit, is uh, in San Antonio. I can't remember the the uh, hotel name. It's like. Uh, Marriott or something like that, mm -hmm. but it's the hotel where Theodore Roosevelt signed the Rough Riders. Oh wow! Okay, yeah, it's in San Antonio. It is. Oh my God! You they have a cigar bar. It it's a place to go. I mean, if you're not like 
you know, drunk or anything like that. You don't smoke, mm-hmm. but, but the history is there. Uh, not, they, they still have like a lot of the, uh, documents mm-hmm. in the bar and the bar is just gorgeous just to take a look. Cause they, they have like, you know, Buffalo head and mm-hmm. it, it's decorated. Like if you go in there, you're a man. <laughs> like you, you can feel the manhood. You just, you just walked into the set of Hateful Eight or something like Tarantino's Hateful Eight. <laughs> okay, pretty much. You you walk you walk in there. And you're like, I think I think I just got a woman pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's it's been almost four hours, so uh, we can probably continue uh, later on. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, look, you need you're probably got to like break this up into like hour. <laughs> No, like I'm gonna, one hour I'm gonna, session. I'm going to put it all up at once. Okay, I, I got you. I, this is the second time I've done this, and it was my co-host. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, this this was a good conversation, good talk. Oh, dude, I, 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 learned, I was I learned, very... I learned a lot about history. Learned a lot about uh, <laughs> your neck of the woods being a, a police yeah. officer there. Yeah, I, I did too. That's what I was going to say. I, the The great thing about conversations is that it's great when they're four hours long, but it's also like, wow, we just talked. It was like four four hours <laughs> that just happened and we we had a break so yeah yeah and not not a very long one though not when we're talking about four hours so yeah it's good but, though dude i was gonna say that like i don't i didn't really know you a whole lot and now here we are we talked for four hours yeah that's how i make friends <laughs> <laughs> yeah right right i'm a good conversationalist but yeah. uh tell 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 where uh pick up your uh take a look at all your stuff and everything yes uh, okay where's yeah, so uh, I'm I'm on Instagram. That's the only social media I do, and I've got a, a personal account which is is public. So it's B dot or B period C period Sanders. That's it. And so on there, I'll post a lot of stuff about history or whatever, what I've written. You know, I, I post a lot of like funny stuff, old photos. Um, and then we have our podcast, the Disruptors Podcast Instagram account which is at the underscore disruptors underscore podcast. That's the easiest way to get in touch with us. Um, ask us questions. Like we've actually had people reach out to us after they've listened to our podcast and been like, Hey, I wanted to be a cop. Everybody's kind of talked me out of it. Um, but, but I heard you talking about working informants or I heard you talking about gangs or homicide investigations and I'm doing it. I wanted, I want to be a cop. So we have a few people like that. So it's pretty cool. So anyone out there, like, reach out to us, ask us questions. We'll, I'll, I'll analyze your gang graffiti, your hand signs. Shoot me a DM. Like, uh, I'll do it. Then we also do have an email address because we're not really on a lot of social media platforms. So we've had people email us stuff like that, like, hey, what does this mean? What does that mean? Will y'all come to our city and train or whatever? So that is uh, the disruptors, and that's spelled with the O-E-R, at the at the end or i'm sorry ors at the end <laughs> if anything just uh text me all the information i got you this yeah disruptors.bc.ski at gmail yeah okay. so that's it we, we, we'll talk to anybody man we're I open mean, talk to me and, and he ended up being happy about it even though it took us about a month and a half yeah 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 I, well that was the thing i i told you i was yeah. like just bear with me man like bear with oh, me oh dude I, yeah. I'm, I'm one of those people as long as you keep uh I can take the fact that people have lives. Yeah. People, no matter what, people have lives. But if you mm-hmm. keep in contact and say, "Hey, 
I still want to be on yeah. the show. I still want to do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you don't yeah. talk to me for like three, four, five weeks or <laughs> right. half yeah. a year. I'm going to go, yeah. oh, chunk that. Yeah, move on. Yep, yeah. yeah. I've got a list right now of 32 people for our guest, and we are we are about five weeks behind from recording. So I told Ski, I was like, man, we got to get back on it, start stacking up people. Well, um, you got an extra yeah. episode now. So yes, yes, you, I do. Like I said, just hell, just get a hold of me and everything. We'll have another yeah, five, man. six hour. Yeah, I was gonna say, man, you, you ju- jump on with with us too, where I, where we can get ski on here and we'll have oh, some yeah. good conversations. Man. Yeah, just just uh, uh, the only time time frame it might be kind of uh, weird is come January we're going to twelve hour shift, so it's three on, three, mm. uh, two off. So, but yeah, so. just get a hold of me. We'll figure something out. I do it, man. I appreciate it, buddy. Thank you all for listening and watching. Catch y'all later.